three, three two, two, one. Let's go! Oh, Sean Dossie has joined the PBE podcast. I don't know what you think of the new setting. I like it. I'm your host, Troy Tittlemeyer, and I want to bring up a couple of things right away. One's going to be Sean Dossie's bio. We'll get into that, but I want to start with the gifts, man. First thing. Oh, wow. The Andy Cube from Molly Turco. Turco Tectonics. These, this is how the universe fractures, Ooh. which means this is how our reservoirs fracture. This is how it's, it's all fractal, right? You go from universal scale to down at the reservoirs, and this cube is going to oh. help you understand fractures right. and how it's... In particular, you're looking for the green lines. That's where you find tension. Okay. And tension means space. Okay. And when Earth makes space, it fills it up with fun things. That's how you find copper, gold, graphene. That's how you find oil and gas. Interesting. We're looking for tension. Oh. When we fracture wells, we create tension, right? Pow! We Certainly. create space with the frac. So there's all kinds of fascinating things. Molly Turco, Turco, uh, Turco Tectonics. Uh, we want to gift that to you. For Thank you. My kids will love this squishy right here. <laughs> They'll have good. a blast. I'll teach them about fractures in the earth. So yes. They're ready for it. And then speaking of that, of course, you got the trunkline.com horizontal drilling socks, sir. Thank you. I Take appreciate that <laughs> for bestowing socks. this. This is fantastic. Enjoy the details of the socks as nah, I read yeah. your bio. Sean Dossie graduated from Texas A&M University. How does it go? Whoop, whoop. Whoop, he's whoop. supposed to whoop. Is that like a gun? That. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, you got to you gotta get the little, uh, little Aggie gun right there. I told you, you know? I was going to forget this light, by the way. Oh. But I got it now. Now we're, we're lit up. There we go. Um, all right, so you do the gun, and you say whoop. Whoop. Like huh. that. That's the, it's the Aggie whoop. The Aggie whoop. Yeah, yeah. It's got a big, complex history. It would take a separate podcast to, okay. really, to, to we'll, really deconstruct that, though. We'll, <laughs> we'll pass on that. You graduated in 2009 with a petroleum engineering degree and a minor in geology, which we got to talk a lot more. Yeah, about we did at the end of the podcast. Show. Very good there. Fascinating stuff, man. And and you know what was? If you can go back to your minor in geology, what was the main takeaway that the that you got from a minor in geology? What was Rocks it? are all important in controlling oil production. So, right on. That's cool. They dictate everything about it. It's the reservoir. Yeah. What we we just on. focus on the oil, but really it's just, it's rocks with oil in it. It controls everything. So very important to understand. Right. Very on. important to understand. You moved to Midland and worked as a production operations engineer for five years before starting your own company called Downhole Diagnostic in 2014, where you help customers understand downhole conditions in their wells and optimize the way they are producing their wells. Yep. That is a huge, huge deal as we talk about extensively in this podcast. Uh, you are an expert in rod pumping diagno uh, diagnos uh, diagnosis. You are an expert in rod pumping diagnosis and optimization. And you have a 50-hour e-course on this topic, which we also dive we'll into talk about, yeah. in the drill down. You can learn more about Sean Dossie and, your, and the company at DownholeDiagnostic.com, and you can check out this e-course, which I have signed up for, and I have got immediate value from at RodPumpingOptimization.com. Topics that we want to talk about in this show. This is uh, your, from your, your suggestion. I want to read this. Basics of rod pumping, right? The system, how it works. We talked about that. Principles and insights from two diagnostic tools, the fluid level gun and the dynamometer. 
alternative ways of understanding your well if you don't uh, if you don't use these tools well test and a p gauge pressure gauge pressure so gauge. just like you do when you're sitting at the well if you don't have these tools you're looking at the pressure gauge yep. and you, you, can, you can take samples off of it but you're standing at the pressure gauge trying to understand what's happening down hole but you're trying to interpret what's happening down hole by looking at surface measurements the yeah. pressure at surface which yeah. doesn't always tell you the yeah. information you need as we discussed we you went into see, that you see the pressure gauge rocking you're like got pump action yeah, I that's right <laughs> importance of getting feedback from the well from diagnostic tools optimization changes now and can pre-plan equipment changes for next pump pull most damaging types of strokes tagging and fluid pounding yeah Man. certainly things you want to avoid Dude. So, compression and what's wasted the strokes yeah, wasted strokes a big one. What's the the saying? Uh, if you're not tagging, you're if you're not bumping, you're not pumping. You'll remember that next time. It's the second time I've had to tell you that. So if you're not bumping, that. you're not pumping. Every, the old timers way where they tag every they tag every, every well and they try to attempt to have a light tag, but a light tag doesn't always stay a light tag. No. Sometimes it gets hard, and really de uh, depending on the pump fillage, it can vary quite a bit. So it might yep. be a light tag if you have 100% fillage. Yep. When it goes to 60 or 50% fillage, it yep. changes the dynamics in the system based on when the fluid load's released, and you could have a very hard tag. Yeah, so, dude. But it's damaging, and you don't want to do it unless you have to. A very specific situation to you might, not common, but you want to avoid it. So In the shallow fields out here, they go, well, they, we deal with a lot of trash out here, so you want that it would to be, be tagging. That would be maybe when you would do it, but only if you need to and yeah. you would want data to show that you need to well for example a dynamometer would show you if it's actually necessary i i guess maybe you could try to do it from production test but much more quickly you could do it from a dynamometer test and but, to me like and we talked about in the show like well if you if you're getting a bunch of trash there's something going on there are you precipitating out a bunch of trash and that's where it's coming from or are you sucking so hard that you're stirring up unconsolidated material and all, sucking all it possible in? like depends on the well figure it out and get get the problem you know go to the source fix the source don't try to treat the symptom yeah exactly exactly Golly. um two achilles heels of rod pumping gas interference and failures your online course Perfect, man. You had questions for me. We talked about those. I enjoyed the heck out of this show. I enjoyed getting to know you more. It was more. good. Yeah, it was a good discussion. It was awesome. Yeah, we went all around. Right. All around the world. Time flew. Even to Russia. Yes, so, yeah. we went to Russia, yeah. which you go several to times. The, to the deepest well in the world, too. Yeah. We went all the way down to the deepest well in the I world. I wish I would remember those little fun facts, what it was called, the operations. It was basically the... Uh, it ended because of when Russia went like really, really bankrupt. Uh, yeah, they, they had a few of those moments. My, my father-in-law lost his money a couple times. Man. Interestingly enough, he keeps his savings in $100 bills, U.S. $100 bills, in a safety deposit box. And I was like, you don't do that. You need to invest the money. But he's actually done very well. <laughs> Yeah, relative I mean, that's reason. a form of investing, I guess. Well, the, the, keeping U.S. dollars as opposed to the Russian ruble, which has yeah. been very unstable, so... Wow. Yeah, yeah. What's your, what's your father-in-law's name? Vyacheslav. Vyacheslav. We call him Slava. Slava. Yeah. And your kids, what do they call him? Oh, they call him Dedushka. It means, <laughs> it means grandpa. And Dedushka Slava. Jeez. Yeah. Isn't it's an interesting cool? language. Interesting language. Wow. So, what's your favorite name. word in Russian? Uh, Zdrastvuitya. What's that? That means, that's the formal way of saying hello. 
Whoa. It's just hello. Здравствуйте. Jeez. Yeah, I know, right? As opposed to hello, yeah. which anybody can learn. Здравствуйте took me about a week to get, you know? <laughs> just even trying to hear it. Like, what are you saying? Здравствуйте. They put all the consonants right there together. So, I mean, it is quite the language. It's crazy. Wow. I tried to learn. I'll get back into it. I kind of fell out of it uh, when I was creating that online course, but I'll get back into it. But wow. it's, uh, it's an interesting, interesting language. Oh, Conjugations out this world, though. They conjugate uh, everything. Whoa. So complicated, but... Sounds like it. Yeah. That's what makes them so smart, though. Actually, Russians are really, really smart. smart, But what were you saying? My wife's Hispanic, so I I try to learn Spanish. Ah, conjugation as well. Right. It just complicates things. We can't just have a word. You know, we can't just say one. We have to say five variations of one, depending on if it's male or female or neutral or like one past tense or one future tense. And it's just. Right? Come on. (laughs) I know, man. I know. But that's why the world speaks English and they don't speak Russian because it's very simple to learn. So, Interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah could be it. That could be it. And it helps with economics, right? Global economics really helps when you can kind of funnel in to one language so you don't have these it is interesting. conversion yeah. problems. I've been around the world quite a bit and everybody speaks English everywhere. It, not, not everywhere, but you'll find people that speak English everywhere. Yeah. So. Actually, uh, my in-laws are coming to Midland for the first time, to America for the first time. Really? So. And they're going and, to and they're Midland? Fly, and they're flying. Well... They're coming for the delivery of the the third baby, nice. and so but they got to fly here by on their own, and they don't read or speak English, so it'll be an interesting process. They've always flown to my wife, and so they've always had a guide. Yeah. And now they'll be coming in through customs and be like, "Yanis nayo, Yanis nayo," which man, you know, I don't know how, but we're gonna try to guide them in as best we can. But All right. yeah. It'll, right be, it'll be fun. It'll be well, fun. Well, dude, we got some events coming up, man. Right. December 14th, you have a special invite to the Multi-Society Christmas Party. It's the WTGS, the PBGS, the SPWLA of Midland, and the SEPM of the Permian Basin. So those four societies are wow. coming together. Where, where's this going to be at? Midland? Kessler's Hall. Yeah, in Midland. Cool. Kessler's Hall, December, December 14th. And PBE Podcast is is now involved. We're going to bring in a one of our contacts from our newest sponsors of this, which is Lenovo, NVIDIA, and a company called Geocomputing, who's developing something called Riva Solutions. So if you haven't heard of that, you definitely want to look this up. It's, ba- it's more targeting towards reservoir engineering and geophysicists. When you have a lot of data and you're trying to figure out how fluid is moving or maybe how your pore spaces and permeability is changing, it's incredibly challenging for software to start modeling between these data points and figure things out. It sometimes takes days, weeks. And if you have one thing wrong in your model, you don't figure it out until it's done. You have to restart. A week of of modeling is trash and you're restarting. Well, they're not doing it in hours. Wow. Riva Solutions by NVIDIA, Lenovo, and a company called Geocomputing. They're all going to be there. We're going to be talking about this story, how it developed, where this all birthed from, and how they're providing these solutions to energy as we're accelerating our ability to make efficient energy on this planet, right? Getting more efficient with the results we have, with the the energy sources we have access to. So that's what it's all about. That's happening at Kessler's Hall. Cool. December 14th. And I'm welcome? Yes, dude. You got a special invite. You're a PBE invite, man. PBE invite. Oh, wow. Bring bring the missus. Okay. Bring the missus. Have a delivery on the floor hall, huh? She's she's due January 1st. I don't think she'll be coming out. You're going to have a New Year's baby. 
I'm hoping for Christmas. It'd be better. Get but, Christmas yeah. Day, dude. Can you imagine? Well, that would be great, but... Wow, so you might have to change the name. Well, depending on the day he comes out, we'll see. How would you say Jesus in Russian? They actually, I found that out yesterday. It's actually Jesus. Which what? I was like, yeah, that's, that's what I, I said. That's how my wife says I it. know. <laughs> I was like, great. it's not exactly the way I thought. <laughs> I think that might actually be the way that they pronounced it in Hebrew. It's just that uh, we make it a J. I think so that might, yeah, I think we messed it up. We, we do that a lot. We're Americans and <laughs> yeah, we speak I English see. and we just call you whatever we want to call see. you. But yeah, I think that's, I think that's, it's the exact same way. Wow. In Spanish, so. Well, the next biggest event's happening in San Antonio in April. So the, okay. the last week of April, 24th-ish, 27th, is GeoGolf. APG, GeoGolf. John Cassiano is spearheading this thing. He's got a ton of support. We're going to kick it off with a PBE little uh, social thing at the the golf course that you kind of grew up by. It's uh, Olympia Hills. Okay. Olympia Hills Golf Course has an amazing outcrop that has serpentine mud cool. which has oil in it comes out into wow. the creek yeah really well in the balconis fault system 30 million barrels has been recorded out of serpentine wow yeah very I did famous not know that oh there's serpentine diapirs all over this region I did not know that we live on the the serpentine belt in United States. That's Interesting. The Balcones Fault System. Okay. Bunch of it. And this golf course has it. And it's got a carbonate vent. It's got this big hydrothermal vent looking thing coming right out of the carbonate, right where the serpentine mud's depositing and has carriage in it and all that. It's, it's a That's where I would hit my golf balls, I'm sure. Yeah, Accidentally, yeah, they would all go into the carriage and mud and down the, the vent, you know? <laughs> That's how I play golf. Yeah, I mean, play yeah, me too. Me too. Yeah. Uh, we would have a good time. So we're going to do a golf course thing on that Tuesday of the of the GeoGolf event. We're going to do some outcropping showing this. And then there's the uh, the big crawfish boil happens that night. And then it goes into two days of technical talks and then a field trip. And there's a whiskey tasting. There's a mountain biking. Cool. You know, it's a cool event, man. So if you want to come down for something in April... Uh, we can certainly bring you in and, and you can get a bunch of networking done for downhole diagnostic with a lot of these operators cool. here in San Antonio. Sounds good. So those are the events coming up, man. And, and that's pretty much it. The, the intro of this show, the dropout from this show is one, I feel like I I, uh, I got to know you more. I got yeah, more yeah, of a relationship yeah, yeah, yeah. with you, which I'm really excited about. But also just the the potential, the potential for South Texas oil, for all these shallow oil fields around here there's thousands there must be a hundred thousand wells out here that are just shallow dude sub three thousand feet all over the place what if they were all optimized you know how much more production could this area contribute to the refineries the light hydrocarbons are just getting flooded into the refineries i think you, there's a story here man and i'm i'm fascinated to pursue that in some way with you and try to just make it you know uh, uh something fun to do Sounds great. This is the conception part of the PBE podcast. We started this whole thing in the Permian, right in Midland. And we started getting these local leaders and legends on the show to talk about rocks and talk about their stuff. So Permian Basin experience was, was good. Joe Rogan experience, right? I thought it might come from that a little bit. <laughs> right, inspired. Uh, and then we said, you know, maybe it's people behind energy, PBE, people behind energy. And that, I mean, you qualify for both of those things. So this is just the PBE podcast. Guess what I'm saying? 
And it's either people behind energy, permeable basin experience, and or both. Both. Right? And it's certainly for your career, right? It's both. Mm-hmm. It's both. You make energy every day. You help companies. You help your customers, your clients better understand how you're getting this efficient energy out of the ground. You're not wasting time. You're not wasting electricity. Right? Misdiagnosing. We try to. Try to. <laughs> so... Which is badass because, you know, I, I have some experience in that and I'm trying to, I got my head next to a well and I'm like, I have no idea what's going on. You know, sometimes I feel like I do. And then sometimes it's like, what in the hell is it trash in the pump, gas interference? What's going on here? I want to talk to you about some of that stuff, but please, yeah. before we get down any rabbit holes, welcome to the show and let's rock it back, dude. Where are you from? Who are your parents? I'm from San Antonio. So it's actually nice to be back here in San Antonio here on your podcast right here before Thanksgiving. You were born in San Antonio? Um, I was born in Dallas and I moved around a little bit. I went up to Indiana for a little bit, but uh, uh, for the most part, I think I came down when I was about, I was about eight years old. Eight years old in San Antonio. San Antonio. Yeah. Wow. That was the first so, time I've seen the Riverwalk? I, I guess. Yeah. I guess. 1990. Something like that. 1990 something i remember when i was a kid the river walk seemed so far away you know it's like we didn't ever come down even though it wasn't that far i mean we're just on the northeast side of town but northeast cool yeah so. over over there by uh, McAllister park or kind of the airport a little bit north of the airport north of the airport yeah. okay so so not quite shirts you're a little west of of the 37 no it's 1604 and 281 1604 yeah just a little south nice. southeast corner yeah it's not a bad spot no that's nice spot. yeah now, back then, it was probably even nicer. It was less crowded. San Antonio's yeah. grown a lot oh, dude. since I was a kid. Huh. So, Been here for a little uh, over a year, and it's like, how does it keep going? How many Chick-fil-A's do you need <laughs> down Petronco? Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's not stopping. And yeah. so, it, which is motivating us to like reconsider where we want to be located in this city. Cause yeah. There's some cool spots. You know, there's always something new, especially when I go out with John Cassiano. The, the guy who's like the local leader in, in geology out here, John Cassiano. Okay. He, I'm like, let's, uh, let's meet up. Let's catch up. We were just talking about geo golf. So we caught up on Friday night. Every time we meet up, it's some completely new area because the guy just knows ev- all these different little holes in the walls, breweries and all this stuff. And we found some pretty cool spots inside the 410, 1604, certainly north, north side of San Antonio nice man big old trees mm. roll a little bit of rolling hills like i'm like whoa you know this feels a lot different what do you live in midland texas it's all nice out here brother so every time i come back home you know when you start to get halfway the trees start to get taller the bushes start to turn into trees and then once you get back to san antonio you realize the beauty of this city in this area so how long were you the- from eight years old to when uh, Tulane went to Texas A&M University. Really? So, so you went to middle school, high school? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I went to MacArthur High School. MacArthur. Yeah, I have um, so. Was it a pretty good school? That was nice. I mean, public school. Public schools were better back then than they, they yeah. are now, at least the perception is. so. Um, yeah, I think teachers probably had a little more patience, you know. Uh, they did it for not like... Well, I don't know. That's just some interesting stuff. It is before that. social media. I remember when I was in... Uh, right. Middle school, though, it was inst- AOL Instant Messenger came out, and everybody would go home from school, and then we would go on the computers, and we'd be writing little messages to each other, but that right. was kind of the introduction to that sort of thing, and right. so it was before all the social media, and I just, 
think we had a better fabric to our society, honestly, and yeah, just a better overall AOL, system. How did AOL miss that boat? You know, they had the whole I thing. I don't know. They completely missed that. I don't know. They could turn that into a Facebook, and everybody wants to share well, their They opinions. turned AOL into a MySpace, right. and they disappeared. I don't even know if AOL's still there, but... Tell me about your parents. Oh, great people. Um, so married, wonderful people. My dad's an electrical engineer. He's oh, actually... Wow. Um, he was actually a nuclear engineer by training and then uh was it three mile island up in new york happened kind of that incident uh some sort of some sort of meltdown to some degree there wasn't like a a nuclear reactor yeah there wasn't any release it was kind of a scare though but uh, it kind of offset the industry and uh, for some reason he lost his work and he somehow just got into electrical engineering he's a smart guy and uh, he's been an electrical engineer i don't know for the last 30 something years so Right. Yeah, and uh, so good, good parents, good upbringing. Two That's brothers. Cool. Is that right? Yeah. Are you the oldest, the youngest, the middle, oh, the troublemaker, the troublemaker. Oh, the, the... I wasn't the leader, and I wasn't the baby, and the I just needed right. attention. And uh, yeah, you're like, I'm not gonna be like you, and I'm yeah, not you annoying me. Yeah. I'm gonna be on my own. Yeah. Man. So it's three, three brothers, three brothers. Wow. It was fun. That's cool, man. It was a madhouse. Yeah. How, how, what's the spacing in age? About three years between all of us. So, so that's pretty yeah, Me and my brothers are, are three and a half years apart. So like right when one was getting out of high school, one was going in. And I'm the youngest. Okay. So I'm the one that you didn't like. Yeah. Well, you would have been the one I was beating up on because my older brother was beating up on me. So you have to pay it down the line, right? You got to have somebody you can whip up on. Yeah, that's but, right. That's right. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, that's good. That's yeah, funny, dude. It is now, fun. What's your dad's name? Oh, his name's Tom. Thomas, oh. yeah, Tom and Diane. I wonder how they came up with Sean. You know, what was the I don't know. There? I don't know. Uh, my brothers are Thomas and Mark, and so just pretty common, pretty common. plain Jane names. And now Dossie's so, from where? Where does the Dossie is? Uh, from my understanding, it was uh, initially, I believe it was Dossier, but it was Whoa. kind of uh, a French. Yeah. And uh, when some forefather of ours came over, he was hiding his French heritage to some degree, and he shortened it to Dossie. It's, it's a really uncommon last name, Dossie. Because yeah, Dawson is very common. You sure. know, that's British. But Dossie is not. Dossier. And, like, if you look up Sean Dossie, like, I'm... There's one. I, there's one. Like, on Google, I don't see any others. If you spell right. the, my name the same way. Right. So, yeah, my first same. name. There's different ways of spelling Sean, too. But it was a very uncommon name, which is kind of un... Which is kind of interesting. That is. So I, I like I like different names though. Yeah. So my wife is Russian. Really? And, yeah. So my, my oldest daughter's Karina, which I kinda like. It's beautiful. Karina. But, but my, my son is Maxime. Maxime. Maxime, that's a Russian. So she she wants to keep in kind of the Russian heritage uh, yeah, line so of names, which really narrows down the options here when it comes to names, you know. It's like Vladimir, I don't <laughs> think so. Sergey I don't think so. Right. But uh, so Maxim, but it's spelled Maxim, like like a like, like a Maxim, Maxim like a fund, fundamental like a fundamental principle or truth, you know, which I think is pretty cool. And we've got our uh, we've got our third child on the way that's coming here in about wow. two months, and wow. that's going to be uh, that's going to be Roman, but in Russian you call him Rama, Raman. So Raman. yeah, I kind of like interesting names. Though. I like things a little bit different. So that's cool. Yeah. Maybe due to the fact that my name's so plain. Right. From your name's plain, my, but you're certainly unique. But my personality has got to overcome that, yeah. hopefully. How'd you meet your wife? Uh, I met her online dating uh, Come on. at eHarmony. eHarmony. Come on. Yeah. Is this turning into Well, e-harmony you know, out in, West, out in West Texas, there's not t- they say there's a pretty girl hiding behind every tree. <laughs> we just don't have any trees, right? And so uh, 
hard to find a woman out there and uh, just started and I kind of have a, an interesting personality or let me say political perspective on the world and that sort of thing so okay. somebody that was kind of fitting my needs uh, just kind of expanded the loop until I eventually went international and I had no intent of marrying somebody international but a girl of course named Natasha as they, they are all named over there her, her mom name is Olga okay Olga. talk about common common names yeah. right um, but uh, she caught my eye, and we started internationally dating. We met in Spain, and then uh, she Dude. came over here, and then I went over, and we met in Indonesia, and then we went to Dude. Russia, and so what? we've been married six years now. So I go to Russia oh. once or twice a year, right. which is pretty cool, oh. which is hard now. You guys must considering have had a Russian conflict. wedding. Uh, we did not have a Russian wedding, actually. We had a wedding here in San Antonio, nice. in my parents' backyard. Is that right? Yeah, it was nice. <laughs> oh, nice and small. So That's cool. Um, but, uh, yeah, so, huh. interesting. That is. It is an <laughs> interesting life. So now so. she's an American citizen? She's American, yeah. Yeah, my, my kids have dual citizenship, so right. all of them are dual except me. I need to get a Russian citizenship. I don't know. Is that possible? I think it is possible. So um, if you have a Russian wife in Russia, you know, they've had a lot of, I mean, due to the economic opportunities, you know, before the war, right? I mean, a lot of people left due to the war because they don't want to be drafted and they don't want to go fight a war and, and die. Um, but even before the war, just a lot of people kind of leave the country, you know, uh, due to better economic opportunities. Sure. And so not that it's a completely poor country, but I mean, there's just better opportunities in the the West for the most part. Sure. And so uh, they're, they're happy to uh, accept people back. So, um, especially if you have a lot of kids and I think with three kids, we would, uh, we would fit that category. That's a lot for me at least. So I got three kids. Do you have three kids? Yes, sir. How old? Five, three, and one. Wow. Yes, sir. Well, we're, we're going to be the exact same because I've got, I've gaps? got a, I've got a five, I've got a three. Well, we're going to have, I guess, a, a five, three, and what is, I guess it'd be five, two, and zero here five, at the beginning, you know, as soon as they come out. But oh. yeah. And it's girl, boy. Boy. Girl, boy, boy. Yeah, so the boys can beat up on each other. Oh, man. Those two Russian boys. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, yeah. Keep them away from the vodka. Mm, yeah, no <laughs> joke. So, and the, the, it's, what's funny is the youngest one now, um, Maxime, he already, we, we call him, you know, Max here. Max. That's the simple way to say it. Uh, but he beats up on his older sister all the time. He's Come only on. two and she's five. Yeah. Gosh, dang it. I know, he's a rough one. So, <laughs> and he, he weighs like almost as much as her. She's kind of like thin and petite and he's just kind of thick and stout. He's on the top of the spectrum. He is, yeah. He's a, he's a, big, he's a big boy. So, but he'll have a, a little uh, pal to wrestle around with. So it'll be fun, wow, but man. busy, busy. Oh yeah. Yeah. yeah it's, it's chaos. Mm -hmm. It's fun, but man, it's just no downtime as you, as you would know yep. with that sort of, yep. that sort of family. So that's cool, man. We're going to dive into a little bit of that. Maybe back in the intro part of this show, All uh, right. bring up your style of parenting. Um, so your dad I didn't know we were going into that sort of thing on this <laughs> podcast but actually you know i have the best piece of parenting advice ever right, i came up with it right let's go it. just this right now so i figured this out recently you know when your kid is throwing a temper tantrum okay and they're in a bad mood if you play the same game that they're playing like they're coming at you with negative emotion and this sort of thing and right. if you come at them with negative emotion you're falling right into the trap okay and right. you have to 
You have to not play that game. You can't come at them confrontationally. You have to kind of come around with your arm around their shoulder. Oh, don't be so silly. We don't need to cry about this. And you have to kind of distract them and guide them to whatever right. you want. We have to manipulate them. We're much smarter than them. We go. can't let them control our emotions. But I actually did this successfully about four times two days ago. Where one the day, two four times. Yeah, one day, four times where things were blowing up and it was about to be like... Uh, I can't take you. Go to your room. Get yeah. out of here. Stop crying. You know, whatever. Time to get thrown up yeah. against the wall. Kind yeah, of. yeah, kind of. Um, and but I successfully distracted them and kind of did like I'm not going to play your game. I'm going to stay in a positive mood. Yeah, and it worked. It was nice. amazing. Yeah, and I re- it clicked, and I just realized I kind of knew this to some degree, but not. I don't know if I could have verbalized exactly what I was doing, but you just don't want to play their game. You play yeah. their game, you're going to fall down the same trap. Everybody's going to be in a bad mood. So, <sighs> yeah, best dude. piece of advice. I like it. Yeah, I like it. Yeah. distraction. You distract them, and you just the kids' moods change like that. You know? Oh yeah. You know yeah. they're so it's crazy, amazing. and then you distract them. You pull out one little piece of candy, and then their eyes light up, and they forget oh, that they were even crying. You know? Yeah, yeah. I don't, and so I'm it's really it's about guy. distraction. I can't do the candy. I, I refuse to do the candy. I grew up just candy yeah. all the time. Well, I, I would agree. You should not. Up. You should not do that. But. I mean, sometimes, you know, we, we've, yeah. got, uh, we've got vitamin gummy bears, nice. which are just, it's just a piece of candy. And they say there's vitamins in there. I don't know if they are, <laughs> but we periodically pull that out. And sometimes, I mean, it saves the whole mood of the, right. you know, day. Like, just pull it out, give them yeah. one. There's a balance, man. It's a funny thing. There's a balance of, uh, yeah, of, of emotion and learning and distractions and teachings and freedom and... You know, there's just an amazing balance that these kids are trying to trying to navigate. <clears throat> yeah. And sleep is a big deal. That's where my son, if I have any guidance maybe to you as he's getting older, he's trying to stay up with the five-year-old. And the five-year-old doesn't need as much sleep yeah. as the three-year-old or two-year-old. If, if he gets out of taking nap patterns and during the day, it's just... Disaster after disaster. Throws everything off. A very yeah. emotional, very, you know, can't, can't, can't really can't break into them as easy. Yeah. You know? But uh, all, all of them at this point, one of the best strategies I think I have is out of sight, out of mind. So they're fighting over whatever it is. All right, I get it. All right, you guys can't share. And I slip that thing away like Houdini. Yeah, under yeah, a, yeah, yeah. Under a blanket. Yes, exactly. Under, they just get all confused. They're like... <laughs> Oh, what were we? Even? Oh, now it's TV time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's exactly right. They have short memories there. They yes. they can switch on a dime. Yeah, it is interesting. Yeah, you think your kids are going to be uh, rock kids, engineers, artists? What are you seeing right now? Yeah, I have no idea. Hopefully, they'll run the family empire. You know? Nice. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. Hopefully, I'll have a family empire to drop off. Nah, I don't know. Uh, you know, it's it's too early to tell. My my daughter, she likes science though, which is interesting. She likes to read science books. Nice. We try to another parenting tip: read them lots of books, get yeah. them into books. That is yeah. the secret. Yeah. Um, and she she loves learning about the body and bones and things. Right on. Yeah, she's doing some of it. She she goes to a good elementary school, um, oh. or kindergarten, I should say. At this point, it's a it's a private one. But uh, nice. Anyways, yeah, she she likes that. But uh, two year old, I have no no idea. So we'll see. We'll see. Oh, Max. As long as they understand the importance of learning and growing, right? You know, and, and developing themselves. You know, yeah. you can go down any career path. Just don't be an artist. 
right? <laughs> just don't be an artist, okay? Well, don't it just be, depends. Like your post the other day. You're going to have to pay your own bills. That's going to be, <laughs> yeah. you're going to have to be so your own bills. Your post the other day about uh, how rich people move their money. And that was good advice right there, though. Oh. Tax write-offs. Oh. Tell, tell them about it. What was the post? Well, dude, it, it reminded me of what was happening with the NFTs a few years ago, right? These, these digital art forms that came out. And all of a sudden, you're like, wait a minute. People are getting paid hundreds of thousands of yeah, dollars crazy. for a digital art piece. And, and if you're in the weeds and you're talking about it and you're in that industry, you can justify whatever you want. When you take a step back and you're thinking... Is this really going on? What's really going on? It was your post, dude. Like, wait a minute. If everyone started moving money and all this transition started happening with COVID and all this stuff, and then we're coming back from that and Bitcoin, what an easy way to move a bunch of money when you need to not get taxed for it because you create an evaluation that your money pays. Well, so so here, here was the post, and this is genius. If you're a small business owner, you're always looking for some good tax write-offs, okay? But it was basically the gist of it was millionaire makes $20 million a year, yep. hires an artist for... $25,000 to put a streak of paint on a, on a canvas, right. gets the painting evaluated at $20 million, donated, <laughs> donates it to someone as a $20 million write-off to yep. some charity, and then boom, he's got zero profits. That's it, man. That's genius. That's so it. I'm, always, I'm always looking for the... Uh, like the ultimate tax write-off, and that, that would be it right there if you could, if you could get away with it. So. Another great tax write-off is oil and gas. Getting in the yeah. business of working interest, partner with something that's making oil and gas every day is a great way. Are you up to speed on that and all the tax write-offs, you know, because they there. say that about oil and gas, they say the same thing about real estate and it's it all gets quite estate. comp. Is it? It's better than Why? I don't know. I can get you I don't in touch know, but it is. Okay. I, no? can get touch, I can definitely get you in touch with a tax expert that is I know you can, you can write off depletion. You oh, so yeah. appreciation, deplete, uh, depreciation. Not, not appreciation. Yeah. Depreciation. So uh, the value yeah, yeah. of your equipment and your casing and everything's so, depreciating. The value of your reserves is dropping down because you're producing the oil out. That's right. And if you're and, using the wrong technology, you got a fat decline curve, which is a problem. Well, you can also, I think, um, upfront cost. So you're drilling. You know, this is my understanding. So when you drill the well, you can write it all off. You don't have right. to necessarily... Um, what do they call it? Where you have to write it off over 10, 20 years, the... Uh, you break it out into increments where you write it off a little bit each year, but they call this a subsidy, I think, is what they call this. So when the anti-oil and gas, when they say stop subsidizing the oil industry, yeah. it's just, but I mean, if you owned a bakery and you bought a piece of equipment, to okay, bake new cakes. you know, what is it, section 179? I mean, you can write off the equipment. Yeah, this is part of your machinery. You can buy that equipment and you can write it off in that tax year. So That's if it's right. a big piece of equipment, if it's $200,000, and you made $200,000 profit that year, well, you know, you didn't make anything because that money went into an asset. That's right. Now, a lot of times you have to depreciate it out over a certain period of time, exactly but, right. and but, but an oil and gas, well, but they call that an, uh, the anti-oil and gas people call that subsidies, from my understanding. This is where they get at, stop subsidizing the oil industry. I mean, I've never seen the federal government just giving free money to oil companies to say, here, go, go find oil. Right. It's not that type of subsidy. It's just really they're letting us do the same accounting that all the other people can do. That's right. So Yeah. And uh, buying an asset that's producing, you, you definitely still have some upfront that you can, you can get. So if, if you got $100,000 that needs to be d bought to a lease, you can write a lot of that off. Yeah. I so imagine. Your, your 100000 that you're putting to work is coming back 
And, mm. and that's, that's, there's a lot of benefits in this stuff. I could definitely get you in touch with the guy. Do you have an accountant or do you do your own accountant? No, no, no. I have an accountant. <sighs> so complicated. Ah, it's time consuming. There's so many different routes you can take. And I'm just like, no, no, no turbo tax for you. No, no, come on. I do, I, I do QuickBooks for my books and then yep. I get somebody to do the final tax filings because it yep. just got way too complicated. When I was an LLC, it, it's all a pass through entity. I don't know if you're familiar with this sort of thing, but it's basically like all the money comes straight to me. I'm a one man company. S Corp. Well, I now I'm an LLC taxed as an S Corp, which go. is confusing in itself. So I'm not an S Corp, but I'm taxed That's right. as, a, as a corporation. But That's now right. I have to do uh, a tax return individually for the company, right. which at that K-1. point, it blew my mind. And I just was try- I tried to do it one year and I said, to hell with this. <laughs> and I found somebody and it was $800. And I was nice. like, please, nice. just take all this and do it. I have no idea what's going on. And yeah. it was like the biggest relief off my soul because I, I was always used to doing it all and i you know, i like to do it because you see the numbers and you see where things are going sure. you kind of keep control of things um but uh yeah a little too complicated so what a mess but there's benefits there's a lot you of know it's not how much you make it's how much you keep right and so that's the whole reason yeah. for i mean write-offs though yeah. because you I might mean, make a lot of money and then if the government claws it all back in some sort of tax you know, yep. that's, that's what people forget about. Yeah. It's not how much you make, it's how much you keep. Yep. That's, that's your, right. that's your real profit right there. It's the same thing when it comes to an oil company though, you know, that's right. It's not how much you make if you keep spending so much in operations. Right. You or know? putting it back into new assets, you know, there's, or yeah, drilling, yep. putting it back into the ground, which the industry got in trouble for, for a while. Do you keep up with that? You know how that happened when the price of oil collapsed, um, you know, actually, I was re-recording section one of my online course, and so I was studying. I have a slide. <clears throat> I don't know if you if you looked at this. I just redid it, but um, you, you've been looking at my online course a little bit. But so I was relating my experience in the oil field to the price of oil, and it was in 2014. I started my company in June of 2014. The prior wow. three years, the price of oil had been hovering between 90 to 110. Yeah. And then as soon as I started my company, I'm like literally the price of oil. Started, started, collapsing. started collapsing and this is when the what they call if i remember correctly you tell me but this is the price wars between opec and the u.s producers and it really wasn't a price war it's just that opec is usually there as kind of a a uh, a support for the market and so they try to stabilize the price of oil but the u.s producers and the funny money coming in from wall street that was right. going into a bunch of wells that had promises of certain production right. that weren't being achieved right. they were bringing in all this production and opec kind of looked at it and of course opec's got this centralized control with these nationalized oil companies where they decide okay open the spigot a little bit more make some more or tighten it down a little bit yeah. reduce production we've got all these independent producers making their own decisions yeah and uh but essentially opec decided at that point well we're not going to support the price because if we support the price if U.S. producers bring on more production and we curtail production, we're just keeping the price high and therefore you continue to bring on more production. And so they just let the, the price go free market, basically. Like, we're not going to reduce production. And the U.S. producers typically don't reduce production. They might uh, adjust their, you know, their forecast on drilling and that sort of thing. But anyways, the price absolutely collapsed. That was right when I started my company. That was in June of, um, June of 2014. That's when and, I got uh, hired my first oil and gas job, June really? 2014. Really? 
and I watched Collapse. Collapse. I'm like, oh shit. <laughs> yeah, that was an interesting, interesting time. You were hired as a geologist. Geotech. A geotech. Yep. I was interesting. Taking all the random data from the fields okay. and from any softwares and data sources we could have to try to find new assets. And I was taking all that data in all those different forms and trying to manipulate it into the softwares we used so that all things can communicate. And so I got to really understand how engineers are, you know, what's important to them, what's important to accounting, what's important to the geos. Interesting. It was cool. It was a great way to get into the industry and, and start learning, you know, really it's all about the rocks. It all revolves around the rocks at the end of the day. It does. So that's a great place to start. All stuck in the rock. Yeah. So, uh, the rock really dictates, right. it dictates if you can do a vertical well and just a little acid job on the perforations and get the production from far out in that reservoir to your well, or if you've got crappy rock, if you've got to do a long lateral, three mile lateral with a huge frack job and crack it open to, to try and make the productive rates. I mean, it's all about the rock. I find geology interesting. But yeah, you got a miner in it. I did. Let's rock it back real quick because we're getting into all kinds of stuff, and this is great. We might this might be a seventeen hour podcast at the end. Oh of this dear, <laughs> let's do it. So your parent, your mom did what? My mom was basically stay at home. She worked a little bit, right but on. stay and at her home. Her name? Diane. Diane. Yeah. And Diane and Tom raising you kids. What did your older brother do? What did he get into? He was uh, he actually went into ministry. So he Whoa. yeah he went to uh, Baptist Bible College and became a pastor for a Whoa. point in time. He's got four kids though. He's pulled back from that. Still involved in church, but uh, he was co-pastoring a church with a friend and kind of pulled back. And uh, his he friend he's up in Austin. Okay, yeah. right on. Interesting. Yeah. And then your younger brother, what did he go off and do? He went off, he uh, was an electrical engineer, okay. and he got into the defense contractor uh, world nice. and is doing safety, and actually he was at uh, Boeing and then Raytheon, and now Oh, he's, I knew Raytheon was going to be in there. They got to be in there. It's good, good times right now for the defense contractors with the uh, activity going on in the world. Um, sure. Can't make enough weapons nowadays, they say, so uh, can't blow up enough of the world. Uh, but now he is working for the Army as like a safety range tester or something like that but basically it's he's told me some stories and it's unbelievable the waste that occurs in our our military i won't detail that here but it's unbelievable but he's safety for in inside the u.s and where's he out of um right now he's in alabama alabama Uh, hunts huntsville huntsville is that it's it's a big it's a big uh so that's kind of in like the northeast side i believe the state i hadn't been over there to see him yet he hadn't been there that long but uh don't go in the summertime no? No. Hot and sticky? Oh, or what? the mosquitoes, bro. Oh, man, I hate mosquitoes. <laughs> oh. You can have. You can have. Yeah, I have, the, the, I have uh, in the, the mosquitoes love my blood. Oh, dude. I don't can go. be I can be outside with my family and like, there's like, there's no mosquitoes and there's 10 on my legs and none on my wife, you know? It's, I don't know what it is, but they, they it's vicious and I, I'm like paranoid about them, you know? I'll be out there in the summer in our backyard and have some long leg pants and like a jacket on you know like we're just trying to hang out just sweating it out with the family trying to trying to hang out there with them you know try to be normal <laughs> like we can do it gloves but, on yeah yeah <laughs> gloves and a hat you know just uh, trying to keep them off me but yeah 
Mosquitoes are the worst. Dude. I'm the same way. Well, I'm that's like, the good thing about West Texas. Come on out, man. <laughs> it goes too dry for those. But we don't. We don't have the humidity. We don't have the mosquitoes. That's except, true. Except when we get a big rain, it all pools up, oh, and yeah. we get mosquitoes. But yeah, they they do not exist too there, but not, not like too here. Bad. Yeah, not like here. Not like Alabama. Not like um, Siberia. Oh, so really? I want to, yeah, I want to go to Siberia, but um, Siberia's got mosquito infestation. Oh man, right? they're supposed to be like elephant mosquitoes over there. <laughs> So what I, what, I, what I've been told, like so, it's it's terribly cold in the winter, and so I was talking to my wife's family about maybe we should go there in the summer, and they were telling me about like the mosquitoes <laughs> there in the summer. Though and I was just like, no, no, okay, maybe we don't go. I'd rather go in the winter then, you know. Yeah. I'd rather just skate around on ice as opposed to try and fight off mosquitoes. So, uh, it's it's terrible. Mosquitoes uh, are the worst. Mosquitoes the worst. and jellyfish. You know, mosquitoes just ruin the air on land, and the yeah. jellyfish just ruin the water. You're just trying to swim out in the sea, <laughs> and you got these little things down there that are poisoning you. Know, you're right. Isn't that crazy? Yeah, yeah. The mosquitoes of the water should run on a platform to eradicate mosquitoes and jellyfish. <laughs> the world would be a much better place. So, ah, oh, man, I enjoyed that so much. I get good mosquito. I'm the same. You feel way. it. You yeah, feel I'm it. The same way. We go yeah. into somewhere, and everyone's like, Do they attack you on your head? Since no, you don't, no, they don't. I they have certain places. You know, it's, it's right down there at the ankles. You know, do you know? Do you know, know exactly what I'm talking about, right? They know how to get me right on the ankle every time. They'll get me through the jeans, dude. I'll wow, get, yeah. yeah. They'll come right through the, wow. the denim. That's interesting. Motherfuckers, man. Yeah, I know. It's terrible. <laughs> but my head, no. I've, it, funny enough, my head doesn't really get a problem. I have a buddy who has a great story about he shaves his head. Or used to back in the day. And, uh, yeah, he takes his girl on a date. They hit, like, the beach, and they're under, like, an overpass. And they're hanging out, and he's like, I kind of felt stuff. Like, he's doing this. A <laughs> couple of things tickling my head, huh? I guess it came out of the underpass, and it was, like, freaking, <laughs> you know, like, the Goonies, just, man. He was just, just all everywhere. bit up in his head. Swollen. I remember one time when I was a kid, I fell asleep. Uh, I talked my mom into letting me and my friends sleep on the trampoline at night in the backyard, oh, and we got tore up. <laughs> Dude, it was hot, so we didn't have any covers on, and just torn up. It looked like chicken pox almost, you know? It was terrible. <laughs> it's amazing you survived. Yeah, it was good times. <laughs> Learned that lesson. But, yeah, uh, that's funny, man. Yeah, they can uh, just ruin a nice day of mosquitoes, you know? So, as a kid... Um, you become you you eventually become an engineer a degreed engineer through a and m but as a kid was there something that your parents did or your brothers did you know some mentor some program like how did you get or did you always just have this natural affinity to engineering? no i had no idea um i would say the most likely thing is my dad was an engineer right i would say i was a pretty ignorant child okay uh, I did not appreciate the value of knowledge and learning until later on in life. And I was somewhat of a troublemaker. Uh, but the fact my dad was an engineer, but he always emphasized to me, get something where you're, it's a value. Like, get a real job, a real career, you know, where you're doing, like, science engineering. Like, do something like that. And I went to Texas A&M, and I actually started in electrical engineering because I did not know, know what I wanted to do. Um, and, of course, early on, you know, you're taking your basic classes. But once I started getting to the higher level... I realized that, man, this, I don't like this, you know, what we're yeah. learning here. So, and it's full of a bunch of kind of dorky people. <laughs> I was a little bit concerned. 
you know, I don't know if it attracts these people or it turns you into these types of people, <laughs> but I need to get out. And so I did know I wanted to be an engineer, um, but had no idea when I was young. I mean, I, I was not a forward lurk, forward looking really at yeah. all. Same. It just yeah, kind of stumbled my way through. And, and thankfully I had a friend from Qatar uh, who was in a who was actually paid by his national oil company to come to Texas A&M to study mechanical engineering to go back and work for the oil company? So I mean, he's got free school and he was getting paid like right I don't even know like after, like fifty sixty thousand dollars a year. He's getting paid to go to school. Right I mean, on. imagine that. Oh, and but he told me, why don't you get into petroleum engineering? And I thought, well, that's pretty cool. The world runs on oil. I'll that's check true. it out. That's so true. that's that's how I got into it. But no, no. how'd you get into A&M? Well, I got in. Thankfully, I you know, again, uh, I, I knew I needed good grades to get into university. I uh, did not work particularly hard in middle school. But when it came to high school, I finally started working hard to ensure I got good grades. Uh, was at least somewhat forward looking in that regard. Um, and so I got in with a, you know, if you're in the top 10%, uh, I think it was, yeah, top 10% of your, your class, you get automatically can go into any university or any public 80? university in the state oh, of Texas, yeah. So Texas A&M, so University Mitchell? of Texas, uh, Texas Tech. Oh, what was yeah. it called? What's that? The high school you went to was called what? MacArthur. MacArthur. Yeah. So MacArthur had a program that if you're in the top... Not MacArthur, all in the state of Texas. This is a state law. That if you're in the top 10% of your class, no matter what. So this is trying to account, I think, for the fact that if you go to maybe a really crummy school in some inner city and it's not very good, but you excel relative to your peers even though you might not test very well on your your entrance exams you, you still know, get that you can still you have the basically the right they reserve a certain amount that if you're in the top 10 percent, you have to be accepted uh but you still have to pay for your you, oh yeah you still have to pay yeah uh, there was no and i paid for my own school which right. i was so which which helped me so to which helped me to study hard when i got into because uh, right. i realized that uh if i don't graduate and get a degree i'm 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 broke yeah, you know, you're real broke. I'm, I'm, I'm real broke. I'm yeah. negative. Yeah. Negative broke. So uh, <laughs> that's the worst type of broke, you know? And I don't think you can actually, um, you know, I don't think you can get rid of your uh, student loan debt from whatever. You can't declare bankruptcy. Bankruptcy, you know, if you buy a house or a car and you can't pay it off, you can wow, declare bankruptcy, bankruptcy and they might come confiscate some things. But if you're still in the negative, like you can get it wiped away. Student loan debt, you can't, though, from my understanding, because you could go to, say, medical school, and then you could just say, oh, I can't pay after you come out with a degree and get bankruptcy, have it all wiped away, and then, you know, $250,000 wiped away, and then you just go be a doctor. And so from my understanding, it's the only type of debt that you can't have removed through bankruptcy proceedings. That is interesting. Huh. Yeah, I mean, I, that makes... Not exactly. I say that's, a good, I think, a good thing, right? It makes kind of sense, because right. people could abuse the system, you know, yeah. as you could you could imagine and so i mean yeah, like, why yeah. not just graduate and declare bankruptcy right and wipe it all off and then start your career and make your money you know? yeah yeah no it's a real thing man trying to figure out exactly how this all goes and the the value you provide as a business to customers and clients and how you charge them and how you file there's there, you could be paying upwards to 40 percent on your on the money you make if you're doing it wrong if you do it right you're down in that 15 to 20 percent on your um, taxes and, taxes on yeah. the income that you make it's huge. huge it's a huge difference it's a huge difference so yeah. it's so funny how our system works you know um 
you know, doing the S corp over the LLC and then you can pay yourself a certain salary distribution. And yeah. And then you, you, it creates these complications when it comes to tax filing, which makes me require needing an accountant, but overall, you know, depending on your level of income, you can save a lot of money. That's right. You know? And so it's, so did, it's all, let me ask you a question as, as an S corp LLC, did you, do you take distributions through your K one or do you have yourself as a, as a salaried employee for the company? I'm a salaried employee. Wow. Wow! Yeah, I, I only get paid eighty thousand a year, <laughs> and I'm running this thing. Dude, you know, dude, I'm running this thing. I'm on right. call. So, that's but right. that is what my boss does. That's what he pays me. <laughs> so, and yeah, then I, you know, I take distributions out. I guess are um, is it withdrawals? I can't remember the yeah. proper term for the entity, but you know, as money builds up in the business bank account, I just sweep it over to my account, and it right. marked up as a distribution in my yep. accounting system yep so so with an s corp i was told that you got maybe three to five years that you can just you don't need the whole salaried employee route right up front it's not a, not really a problem as you get started and get growing but eventually it becomes a problem you got to have you know salary uh that you're reporting so yeah. anyway just something to the... it's a mess so yeah there's so many different we just need uh we just need a 10 percent flat tax 10% flat. I think that's actually what it is in Russia. 10% flat tax. No matter what you make, you pay 10%. Really? Yeah. That would be nice, huh? That's so low. Yeah. Well, they they uh, they got so much oil that they produce, though, that revenue doesn't go to citizens. It goes to the state, you know? Yeah. So I think they can have lower taxes. But from my understanding, I think I could be wrong if if it is graduated to some degree based on your income, it's significantly lower. It's significantly Pretty lower. And the cost of living over there is significantly, significantly lower, man. You go over there. Last time I was over there, and of course it all depends on the exchange rate, right? Mm -hmm. And so the ruble versus the dollar. Um, and it used to be like 60 rubles to the dollar. And right now it's a little bit of below 100. Maybe it's about 90. But man, when I was over there, like you could get this big loaf of delicious bread and when you convert it to dollars, it's like 60 cents. And this is just like a, you know, like artisan made bread almost. And it's just like 60 dollars bread here. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's just like you get the, I mean, everything, it's just significantly cheaper. So interesting. Huh. Yeah. That is. Huh. It's the I best wonder... way to multiply your money is you make it here and you move someplace cheap where the cost of living is low. And sure. you just take your money and you 3X it or 4X it. Yeah. Yeah, so. yeah. People move to Mexico to do it's that. A strategy, people, yeah. Yeah, it's certainly a, a move. Cool, man. Well, no. uh, all right. So you grew up in San Antonio. You end up getting uh, good enough grades in high school, and you say, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna go be an Aggie, mm -hmm. in Texas A and M. Whoop! Is that why I do that? <laughs> Whoop! Yeah. And it worked out great. I love Texas A&M. It was great. Uh, we get dogged on a lot. I don't know why. Right. They say we drink the Kool-Aid or something <laughs> like that. I don't know if it's still the same way, but uh, it's a great one. Well, just why A&M? Well, my parents went to A&M, oh. which was kind of... Uh, but, it, you know, I really enjoyed the fact that it's a university city. like, And so it is a city built around a university as opposed to Austin when you're in the middle of a city. And so everything... I mean, you go shopping at the store at Texas A&M. You go to the grocery store there. And there's just, I mean, you're shopping with a bunch of attractive college girls, you know, this was quite, uh, but it was nice. I mean, there's just college kids everywhere and uh, beautiful location, not a big city, but that was kind of basically it. Just, I like the setting, the scenery, they're both great universities. It was either one of the two and, hey, um, and my parents went there and so I was like, okay, you know, I, you know, 
Sounds good enough to me. What are some of the uh, the big jokes between the Longhorns and the Aggies? You know, I have no idea. Oh, you um, you I, no, I don't really. Good, I don't really keep no good Longhorn jokes. Uh, you know what's what's funny is that people that don't know the fight song of Texas A and M is Saw Varsity's Horns Awesome. If you've ever seen an A&M football game where they all start, they put their arms on each other and they all start oh, swaying sawing. back and they're sawing Varsity's Horns, which is UT. And the funny thing is, is that we do that in games where we're not even playing UT, you know? <laughs> and it's just like, what are we doing? I mean, it's a kind of a cool tradition, but it's also kind of, this is a little bizarre. We're not even in the same uh, f- uh, football league, you know. They're, we're in the SEC now, and they're in the Big Twelve or something. Right. And we don't even play them anymore. Hate we're em, still though. sawing them off, though, you know, <laughs> sawing them off. So that is one. Maybe that's where we drink the Kool Aid. You know, I don't know, but uh, I can see that. Yeah, it's a great school. I love, I love uh, Texas A and M, except, except when they reach out for me to to donate to them, right. you know. And I just saw that the uh, they fired the football coach. And he had some package deal. He Jimbo? got like, se- yeah, Jimbo's gone. Is that right? Yeah, and he got seventy million dollar payout, or forty to seventy million dollar payout to end his contract early. Yeah, and then they call me to ask for money. It's like, huh? Come on, guys. Yeah, that's uh, whoever wrote that contract. Yeah, it was up a good one. It was and a good accepted one. Accepted that contract. You know, I would just love somebody to buy me out of my job. What if somebody came to buy you out of your job for a couple million dollars? Like, hey. Yeah, I would take that. Yeah, just start another LLC. Yeah, there you go. Start another LLC. (laughs) Yeah. So, anyways, it was a good school. Uh, I really enjoyed it. And did you? You went to the games all the time. Uh, When I was at university, probably. I guess I haven't gone back much. I'm not really. When you were there, was it? uh, You guys were in SEC. Was that or was or were you? No. Yeah. No. No, it happened sometime after. Yeah. Yeah. I don't. I don't know. We. Yeah. I don't well, know. I mean, the Aggies were, were crushing whatever division they were in before the SEC, right? You know, the, the thing was is that from my understanding, I do not keep up with sports commentary. Oh, okay. I did like to watch some sports. Uh, don't have time anymore with kids now, pretty much. But yeah. uh, my understanding is that we always felt like we didn't get the attention we deserved. Everybody, mm. you know, you go around the state, everybody's got longhorns. It's the capital mm. and mm. it's the more mm. popular. And so... We kind of felt like the redheaded stepchild, sure. and so, and I think the SEC was maybe interesting to have a big university from Texas in, and so we thought we're just going to go over there uh, and join the SEC. I, I don't know, so okay. that way we we get more attention, you know, as opposed to being overshadowed right. by UT. Something and like that. He happened to do it at the same time Johnny Football Manziel yeah, shows up. Yeah, he was great. And I he, liked him. He took that program. Yeah, he did. That was interesting. Yeah. Have you seen the Manziel uh, Netflix? No. You haven't. You haven't stayed no. up after getting the kids down. No. And it on no. Bit. It's a good one. Yeah. Yeah. He's very. He seems to be very transparent in, in his like where he's at now and reflecting back and talking about all that stuff that yeah. happened. What a wild freaking career! You know, weird just time. It reminds me of just you know thinking back on on the early 20s and getting into you know mid 20s like what a crazy time as a young individual i feel like certainly and his story is kind of like right on that is like when you're in it 
you're in it. Like, this is what you're going to do. This is what you do. This is what it's all about. And you feel like that's what your world's going to be. Like, mm-hmm. that's that's what you see. You don't even think years ahead because you're in it. You're there. Yeah. And you're just, and then all of a sudden it's like, wait a minute. No, this is not how So is, is he is he out? Does he not play in the NFL? or No. No, no yeah. he's He's been... Yeah, and I know we had a little controversy about him, but is it due to his performance though? Mainly, I mean, it's not like there aren't other athletes that I don't even know what he did. I mean, he wasn't beating his wife or anything, right? What did he? Uh, yeah, I don't know the. You know, I don't know exactly what was going on there at the end of the NFL career, but uh, as he far just as didn't personal, have the performance. I yeah, don't but, think. But in he college, was on the he was Browns. Yeah, he was. Know? He was amazing in college, though. Yeah, he was on a a run there for a bit where. Yeah. Just it was impressive. Fiery, yeah. Yeah. Decision maker and very unconventional. Like, yeah. So you just, uh, yeah, it's amazing. He, you know, he probably set a lot of new trends to younger generations of kind of how to play that ball and Mahomesy kind of, you know what I mean? Now we got Patrick yeah. Mahomes that's kind of like that. And he was a, he was a white guy and he was fast. And I, yeah. I appreciate to see a, a white guy that's fast out there on the field. So, Trying to, yeah. <laughs> not, not many of them left out there. They can't keep up. So, <laughs> that's right. That's right. I can't well, keep cool. up. So you get uh, you get into A and M. You start as an electrical engineer. You don't really like it. You're like not my crowd. Electricity. It's what are we talking a... about here? Photons. Yeah. Capacitors <laughs> and ductants. I don't even know, man. Dude, it was terrible. Now, as running an oil and gas company, it's so effing important to understand electrical. It is. It is. So you have a skill set in electricity, like do you go a little bit? No, no. And I just just, really I struggled through those, and I got out quick. (laughs) I was like, "Get me out of here, dude!" I was so. But it's so theoretical. What I love about the oil industry, I mean, it's kind of theoretical because we don't always see what we're doing, right? But it's like very real. Like we're like got a big rig and we're drilling a hole, and you're making dirt's coming out, you're circulating it out, and you're running casing down, and you're pumping cement. It's like physical electricity is like all this theoretical. You got these wires and you got all oh, this, dude. you know, it's and I guess weird. it maybe it's physical. I, I don't know, but it was not my, not my cup of tea. Yeah. So I got out when I switched over to petroleum. Um, this it was, was about a year. year. No. So freshman, you know, uh, it was probably like my, I took five years. So it'd probably been like th- my third year I switched over. Wow. Um, but it was a year after that when the price of oil hit up, like the, the blow off top 140. Yeah. And I thought I was a genius, <laughs> you know, I was one year from graduation and the price of oil was through the roof, and we were in high demand. And then, of course, it crashed with the great financial crisis. I mean, it crashed down to uh, like 50, 45 50 dollars a barrel. Two thousand eight, two thousand nine. Yeah, yeah. Which uh, was not actually that big of a crash. I mean, it was a huge change in price. But if you look at the price of oil at that point, at the trough, it was still a lot higher than it had been in recent history. Right. You know, from the eighties. Uh, to 2000 it was between eight to thirty dollars a barrel most of that time and so and even into early 2000s to you know 2003 something like that i mean it was just starting to climb up above that but i mean super depressed range and then of course it had this blow off top crash down that's when i moved out to midland i that's why i went out to midland because the industry had crashed it was hard getting a job i had like 14 interviews finally got in with a fall a small family run company uh in midland texas wasn't my first choice location family the sparks family uh, discovery operating they've been there for about 50 years Uh, they're well known actually one of them is a a state senator so for 
Texas politics. He recently became a senator for the state of Texas, not not federal here. We're talking about local internal politics in okay. Texas. Uh, but they're very well known. Uh, but they've been around about 50 years, weathered the storm. Their first first two wells they drilled were dry. And so the, the patriarch, Don, uh, somehow with investors, he used to work at Shell, but drilled two dry wells, kept it going. And then I guess the third one wasn't dry. And uh, but built things up. He's got uh, three his three sons that uh, oh, wow. basically he's still involved, but they basically run it. But great, great company. Um, and that's how I got my start. So interviewed with them. They were looking. Uh, they had a lot of Sprayberry Wolf Camp nice. uh, type stuff. So they they were, we were doing the vertical wells back nice. then. Solid. They're into the horizontals now, as wow. everybody, but into the verticals. And they were looking for help. And I was looking for some money. There you go. You know, and we had a good trade. What did you learn in petroleum engineering from A&M that really helped you understand your, your first job? Uh, I wouldn't say anything in particular, but really just the basic concepts, you know, of everything. So nothing stands out. It's, it's, it's hard to have things land a lot of times, I think. Uh, you know, it'd be great if uh, we're, we're going to talk about drilling rigs and we'll talk a little bit about drilling rigs and then we go out to the drilling rigs and then we, we come back. But I don't know. You know, I learned all the basic concepts. I wouldn't say anything, though, really stands out. It was like that was absolutely pivotal. Wow. Uh, but just understanding all the functioning of how you drill a well, how you perforate how you frack it i remember the first time i heard the word frack because i didn't come from the oil industry and this the professor was up there just talking about fracking fracking and i you know i was never shy to raise my hand i raised my hand uh what is fracking okay i have no idea what you're talking about and you're talking to me as if it's something i know and i had no idea what this was so in a lot of part of the world they probably don't because they don't do that this is something i recently come to understand is that it's very different out here in the Permian Basin than the unconventionals. You know, over, so I went over to, um, so I go to Russia every year. Well, you can't fly directly to Russia now due to the sanctions. So they make it hard on the people. So we have to fly through an intermediary country. So we either go through Istanbul, Turkey, Mm. or uh, this last time we went through the UAE. And uh, when we were in the UAE, uh, NOV, which is a big service company, has a big yard over there. Ended up contacting them. Hey, can I get a tour of the specific type of process that you do? I was interested in, and like, I'll make this maybe a little bit of a tax write-off. I don't know here, but hey. So wrapping up the conception part of the show with Sean Dossie, <clears throat> it's pretty interesting, really interesting, really, because we're in the same industry and we got there through totally different paths, but similar things, you know. And so I, I always enjoy learning people's backgrounds and where you're coming from and and kind of your perspective in the industry and it was ve- it was very logical approach very logical approach and and then petroleum engineering you're learning how to drill complete frack find the zone and then get that get that flow back so your first job was more drill bit completion target intercept get fluid out of the ground or did it did since it's a small company were you carrying that all the way through production? Were you doing facility builds and? Yeah, what I loved about um, Discovery Operating, the company I worked for, was it was small, and in a small company, you get to wear a lot of hats, and so you get to do a lot of different things. But um, it was really everything uh, all all throughout. But the great thing about it is, I remember when I graduated, they threw me out with roustabouts and building wellheads, working on tank batteries, and then I was riding routes with pumpers, wow. gauging tanks, you know, lo- looking at uh, pressure gauges trying to understand pump action 
And then I would, before I knew it, they threw me on a pulling unit. I remember my boss said, you're going to be on a pulling unit tomorrow. And I said, that's great, boss. What's a pulling unit? <laughs> okay. I had no idea. You oh, know, I didn't, they, didn't, they somehow missed this aspect in uh, my education. Damn. But of course, when you have to service a well and something breaks down whole. Um, but I was supervising jobs when I didn't even know what I was doing. You know? yeah. And so the, the hands that were doing the work knew what they were doing. And I was That's technically in charge. But yeah, I'm like trying to learn what are we doing. Yeah. But so I got a lot of field experience. Uh, and that continued all the way throughout onto, wow. um, you know, I mean, even like fishing jobs, squeezing off casing leaks with Jeez. cement on drilling rigs, on frack jobs, acid jobs. Jeez. And so it was a lot of field experience, which is fantastic because that's the best thing you need yeah. coming out of all the theory of, of university. But, and then of course it was managing production, managing pumpers and doing just the normal day-to-day -day grind of trying to keep wells operating efficiently. You and know. these are five to 7,000 foot vertical wells? Um, most of the production. So they had about 350 wells scattered across the Permian Basin. We wow. had a few on gas lift. The rest were rod pump. That was the form of artificial lift. And... Um, most of them were uh, wolfberry wells, as we would call it. Yep. So it would be, it was all Midland Basin. Yep. And it was probably perforated, depending on where the well was drilled, but on average, about 8,000 to 9,000 foot was the sprayberry. And then about 9 to 10 so was the wolf camp. And so. <clears throat> south of 20? South of 20 for Whoa. the most part. Uh, there's some right south of Midland, um, probably about 15 miles, and then some further southwest. And there's some kind of north of Stanton and, and really kind of scattered around, wow. uh, even some around Pecos. But yeah, so uh, yeah, about eight to 10,000 foot. Damn. So, yeah. yeah, those are the deeper part of the, the yeah. Woodbury play for yeah. sure. Damn. How many, like, so on, an, on average, while you were working there, 350 wells, what kind of production numbers were you seeing across the board uh, daily? Like production coming out? Yeah. Oil you to know, the tanks, water to the tanks, brine to the tanks. Right? You know, it, it, it's interesting. So uh, the philosophy of the company was like we're going to operate efficiently with our capital, right? So they've, they've weathered the storm. And, you know, some of the price swings that have happened, uh, and I was born in 86, and I think in 86 the price of oil was like $8 a barrel, something like that. And uh, but so we didn't buy huge pumping units and we didn't get after it. Basically, everything went. The wells did not flow. So for the most part, they might flow up the backside a little bit. But after the frack job, they went straight to rod pump. Wow. These are vertical wells. And, uh, and so we didn't have big pumping units or anything like that. So really, it was just the production rate that would come with our pumping system. And I think we were getting, you know, 250 barrels of fluid per day, something like that. But nothing. 250 total Just total barrels. fluid. Yeah. 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 When you drilled and completed them were you out there with the mud logger looking at the cuttings and seeing what the, where they were actually perfing uh n no for the most part no did you have a stratigraphic so, column and a type log and like yeah so, so we logged everything and you know picked out where we were going to perforate in the different intervals and we would usually do probably about a six to eight frack stages for about a 2,000 to 2,500 foot interval, because sometimes oh we go a little bit. Yeah, so you were hitting all the little strings. We just hit them all. That now they're going horizontal. Yeah, that used to be how they did it. Yeah. So I think the uh, Sprayberry Wolf Camp, uh, you know, these Wolfberry Wells, I think that became popular in early 2000s. And actually, yeah. I think it, to some degree, Discovery Operating was pretty early on that, um, wow. doing yeah, that that's sort Henry of. Petroleum. Yeah. God rest his soul. He just yeah. passed away. Um, that's how he made his break. I mean, I think there's a lot of people 
from 2000s to 2015s to early, you know, even 2020, that was that big, that was a transition. We understand, we really have a lot of data vertically. We really kind of yeah. understand how that's going. Let's go. Let's and go we out. know there's a lot of oil there. It's just a problem getting it out. That's right. And, uh, but it used to be much more verticals going after it. Yeah. And, and now everybody, including Discovery Operating. So, um, and being a smaller company, they're always, you know, they're very, they have investors. Right. So it's not like some, you know, publicly traded where we got some big slush fund of capital and that yeah. sort of thing. We got individuals that are in on a well. If you yeah. lose a well, there's somebody in on that, that that's, you know, depending on how many investors are on it, maybe 15, 20 people, yep. somebody's taking a, a big hit if you yep. lost a well. And of course, if you lost a horizontal well, you have a huge hit. So they were a little bit cautious about going into that. But now I think all their development is is horizontal because it's just so much better. The production numbers are so much better. Yeah. And you just crazy? can't get a, can't get away from it. Yeah. Yeah. You're depressurizing so much more rock in that reservoir. So much more contact. Yeah. Yep. It's just a different animal. Um, what do you think you're drilling, completing a Wolfberry well to 10,000 feet for a million bucks? Yeah, I think it was, it was around, of course, it depended on the price of oil and how busy services were, but I would say a million, about one point, a million to 1.2. That would build the pad, that would put yeah. the tanks there, that would put your flow lines. Yeah. Wow. And then I think these horizontals are somewhere around maybe eight. Uh, yeah, you know? that's what they'll, they'll try to say. So... I, I don't know. I've never done the economics on a on a horizontal, so but a lot more expensive. Oh yeah. But production rates making yeah. that money. Yeah. So, so were you ever a part of the discovery doing horizontal wells? I no? was not, unfortunately. Okay. So uh, I worked there for five years, and uh, they started doing it after. So I had a little investment on some of the verticals, so I'm invested a little bit, tiny percentages on nice. some of the horizontals. But that's badass. Yeah, but really small, you know. Yeah. So really, almost maybe even more paperwork than it's worth in value Damn when it. it comes to taxing time. Yeah. Speaking of taxing, yeah. one more thing I got to keep track of, you know, yeah. these measly little investments. <laughs> but uh, anyways, didn't want to let it go. You never know what'll happen in the future. They say you never, never sell. You know, my. Uh, so my grandma got a bunch of mineral rights from her uncle who didn't have kids and he was a speculator, right? And so he was speculating on land back out here in the Permian Basin. And can you imagine if you were speculating on land, like buying stuff, you know, the, the, the value for the minerals in the Permian Basin, if you just went back 20, 30 years ago with the magic time machine, yeah, I mean, you could just make so much. But anyways, he was buying these little parcels here and there. And so she ended up getting it along with her sisters and really? it's come down. Yeah. Unfortunately, you know, my grandma passed away several years ago, but anyways, her, her family sold off their minerals. Oh, man. Yeah. The landman came after him Damn. and it was a time, Hey, we'll give you $30,000 for it. And they sold it off and she was making, you know, I mean, a lot of years she's making $50,000 a year, you know? Oh, so just man. depending on the price of oil and, you know, wow. we're all going green. Nobody wants this oil anymore anyways, you know? Um, Got to watch out for those landmen. They, they, they're good. They got some good sales pitches. But she always told us, "You never sell. You never sell." And I absolutely agree. Yeah. So always hold on to it. You don't know what it's going to be worth, and um, especially if it's more difficult to drill wells and yeah. the politics of it and yeah. that sort of thing. Never sell. Wow. So thanks, and, Grandma. Yeah, thanks, Grandma. <laughs> it's not. It's not mine. It's in my parents' hands right now. But you know, and of course, it keeps getting subdivided. But yeah, it's amazing mailbox money where you know it just shows up the mail somebody produced your theoretical oil and uh it's awesome it is it's awesome. it is it's a beautiful Perfect. thing it's a beautiful thing about america 
I you agree. Know, I as agree. opposed to the government owning it but all. The, right. Yeah. But the the uh, other side of the razor's edge on that is that it's you know it's ran by private industry that can really just fuck it up. You know, and your ground gets all drilled up, and they didn't perf right. They didn't do it right. They well, who do you world. want doing it? The government. Yeah. No, no, that's, I'm just saying. The, well, yeah, depending on the situation, hopefully it could get, it could it's get in it. good hands. Right. But you know, you can develop your own oil. That's there the thing. You, you don't need to have Chevron come in and lease out your minerals. Go get your own drilling rig and drill up right. your own minerals that's and keep right. 100%. That's where I it's I think at. that's the future for this next generation of oil finders. You know, there's this big break, and that happens over and over in the industry. And we're in another one, and I think we're coming out of it now, at least in my opinion, in like the circle that I run with. I'm seeing a lot of people get funded, and I'm seeing you know, some real growth, I think, in capital and yada, yada. And, and you're like, man, who are the 25 to 35, 40-year-olds that are really getting after the industry, that are really in it and getting after it? Who are you trusting? Mm-hmm. to get this energy out of the ground and make these these better decisions and, and manage the waste better. Because that was a whole other thing, I think. In my opinion, the horizontal play was just as wasteful as the original oil boom when you see those old pictures of all the derricks everywhere across the L.A. Basin or parts of Midland and, and the Permian. You know, you saw it all just stacked up, one derrick after the other, and mm-hmm. drilling everything. You look at a horizontal map in some of these areas, and it's the same bullshit. They just drilled and drilled and drilled the Bakken. I mean, have you seen some of the horizontal maps? I, I don't <laughs> typically look at that sort of thing, but that's why the industry got punished. I mean, as that, yeah, because so the, they would never return capital to investors. It was constantly way, sinking yeah. it into the ground, and it's like, hey, where's my payout? You know, like this isn't gonna. It's like a Ponzi scheme or something. Yeah. You know, it just constantly yeah. keeps getting recircled, and like, where's the end? Where's the yeah. payout? And yeah. And here we are. Here we are after that. So I think it's up to us, you know, and and people like you that are really in it and really understand and really have this affinity to do that. And I think there's there's a lot of exciting years ahead, I think, for exactly what you're saying, where you get involved in owning the minerals, drilling the minerals, producing the minerals, and being that person. Because who else knows how to do it? No. Your grandpa, he ain't going to go out there yeah. and fuck around with this anymore. For sure. He'll c- call me when you need something if you're really in trouble. But no, it's it's us. You know, it's, it's this generation that's out there every day trying to figure it out, wanting to figure it out. And now I'm seeing the stadium filled with more money, rooting for people like us, believing in this next generation. And I, I think that we're going to do that. I think that's a, that's where we're It's at. a big ordeal. I, I would probably be happy to lease it out to somebody and say, hey, you give me 25% of my oil, you keep the other 75% if you drill it and operate it because it's a, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of risks too, though. That's the thing. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's when you're the mineral, when you own the minerals, you don't have to pay any of the expenses. You don't oh, care no. what the expense rate is. You don't care if they lose the well and redrill a replacement. Go get my oil. Go produce it out. You know, you're just getting skimming the top. So, it's the 
That's the nice side. So I've I have some uh, some mineral rights. Nice. Um, yeah, I get a little of that mailbox money. I also have some working interest nice. where I pay on, but the working interest isn't as fun. Damn it. Sometimes it's negative, you know. <laughs> and I've had it be negative for a year Passive where I'm, jobs are expensive. You know, things happen, and it, I'm just <laughs> losing money. You know, like Damn it's man. like is this investment even worth it? No, not if it, it keeps. It depends that. on the price of oil. You know, it's such a heavily. It's just a wild swinging industry. I don't. I don't know how the price of corn or pork bellies or some of these other commodities vary, you know, but the price of oil, especially the last 25 years, has just been up and down and all through, you know, where you see that blow off top and then it dropped down and then it went up in, uh, you know, 2010 to 2014, it was $100 a barrel and then it dropped down. We went through a really low low period down there, around $40 a barrel, kind of went up again, then the... Then the then the pandemic happened and the global government shut the <laughs> shut the economies down and told you to over the nose over the nose remember that that time so and of course when you make a transportation fuel you know that's not going to help the industry and so um, it's really just been an absolutely volatile yeah. industry it's it's yeah. uh, but that drives everything that drives the activity of the oil companies and then that that's drives right. the activity of the service companies right. boom bust that's right it's such, it's such a fascinating thing you make a ton of money you have a great job you know people make some ridiculous amounts of money yeah. doing some simple things you know yeah. I mean like that don't require college degrees but then you lose your job yeah and so yeah that's the uh, difficult part about it but for sure yeah it's an exciting industry I love it yeah I love no, it there's opportunities in both of those times there is know? and learning all the different angles learning about all that getting a network that's doing it all you know work over crews and you know well, you're stuff. getting this experience right now let me let me be the interviewer so you've got some wells that you're operating yeah how's that going first set of wells so how, how long have you been in on it how 2021. many 2021 2021 how many wells do you have do you want to share that Bought or? my first lease okay and then just got a second lease okay and that's where we met in West Texas. Okay. Yeah, I did a little I did a little work for Troy. That's so. right, man. I thank God I found Sean Dossie because I'm certainly learning a ton more about the downhaul and yeah. what's going on with Rod Pump through your e course. Yeah. So it's been it's yeah, you're worth every penny that you came out and helped me with uh we know where fluid level was and your filings, you know, you get the railroad commission that's all over everything and they got all different rules and I go into a new area and they got totally different rules. I got an injection well, I'm like, man, I'm really getting There's a lot of regulatory, that. yeah. Yeah. And operations. What are you what are you learning though in this process? So you've been in it a couple of years now. What's it like being an operator? Because I've never been an operator. Well, I mean I have, but not my own. You know, I operated for other people's assets and yeah. I never went in and tried to get something functioning on my own. Yeah. That's Yeah, there. I mean, there's a ton of risk in it and that's not fun at all because... Does it know, keep you up at night or you... Oh, yeah. It's got to. I mean, yeah, you've got yeah. real skin in the game. Right. Yeah, you're doing all this. It's not theoretical. My company flops. I just go find another job. Like, this is... No, yeah. This, this is, is on... What's on your LLC? The, I guess your LLC right. can collapse, right? Yeah, that's right. But, you know, we're, we're trying to invest in some real new ideas, new technologies, new approaches. And so I meet all these interesting people who have access to different assets. And, and so I, I'm building, you know, a unique database of, of information that I specifically use to go after an opportunity. And uh, Sue Pritchett from Icon Science recently said, you know, you find oil where you find oil. So my thing is 
perfect. I have access to everything that the Railroad Commission has kept in record since mm. the 50s. Really, it was the 70s that it kind of got a lot better as far as how you, how the Railroad Commission reported uh, publicly from what you were doing as an operator. And so you get a lot of this data and you find these wells and they're all over the place. Mm -hmm. Thousands and thousands of wells out there that used to do 20 barrels a day, 30 barrels a day. And you're looking at them now and they're like half a barrel a day. Mm -hmm. You're like, oh, all right, what's going on here? And a little re-stimmy. What, what are you, what are yeah. you thinking here? Can I get it back? Is that what it is? Oh or, yeah. yeah. Or is There's, it just pressure depletion? Right. You got all these unknowns on why the thing is now doing what it's doing yeah. and how can you get it back economically? That's a key. There's ways I believe a thousand percent that so many people could do oil farming in South Texas. Mm -hmm. Permian's a little different. When how you, so? When you have to do a work over on a 7,000 foot well. The, the, it, the right. depth is what you're talking about? Yeah. It makes it a lot more expensive. People oh, don't, yeah. there's some people, the old timers know this, that you, the shallow wells are cheap to fix. That's right. You can do a tubing job in a day. Oh yeah. You know, exactly. but when you got to pull 10,000 foot of pipe out, exactly. you know, 10,000 foot of rods, 10,000 foot of pipe. That's right. And if you do the science right and you figure out, oh, look at all this scale that's coming in. What is that? What is actually causing that? And you can do these subtle different techniques to keep that down and even take it away from the system and now you're really opening up those old fractures and old porosity that used to be w what was connected to the big field and what's connected to that oil flow but when you drill and you complete and you flush that back and you change the temperature and you change mm -hmm. the volume suddenly that's the decline curve that's your wedge you're causing scale you're causing uh, depletion in your space that's allowing the fluid flow so if it's all scaling up and you're just pulling it like the people who originally drill it want to do, they got to make all their money back from co the cost of drilling. They don't think long-term long -term production. But if you look at the gravities of the oils and you look at what's actually scaling up in the pump and scaling up at the purse and you're, what's building up at the bottom of this hole in the rat hole, you get all this trash in the rat hole, scoop yeah. that out run it through uh, ICPMS and it tells you every element that it's made out of and how much is it. And so you can start figuring out what was formation, what was there when it was originally drilled, and what is all this new stuff? And this new stuff is taking up space. And it's scale? Yeah. You can just call that. it trash. No. You can call it whatever you want. It can be scale. Was it always scale? I mean, it's, no. it's got to be a scale, right? It's scale because... Something that precipitates. That's right. Okay, and which I would think of scale, but... I don't the know. hydrocarbons are doing the same thing. You're getting plugged up by the hydrocarbon going from a light, nice, movable crude to a heavy, sticky, waxy, yeah. carriaging thing. That's happening too. So you got to attack both. You got to figure out how do I get rid of all of that and open up this system back to those natural fractures that are hooked up to the petroleum system. And how are you doing that? Well, I got all kinds of techniques. That's it, where you got to hire you for a consultant, right? <laughs> the technique, yeah, the, the technologies that are out there, they're all kind of like on the shelf and one does this, one does that. If you don't know what the scale is exactly, and you don't know what your hydrocarbons are exactly, your carriagen specifically, what is, what type of carriagen is that? What kind of oil should it be making? What kind of gases is it making? If you don't know that, then all these options on the shelf are just overwhelming. What do yeah. we use? Oh, what did you use, neighbor? You know, what yeah, are you yeah, doing? Yeah. 
So you talk to everybody, you get an idea, but you really have to do your own research on that particular whale because every whale is like a, like a, like a baby. Mm-hmm. Every whale is like an individual baby, man. Like it, they they they're different. Our kids are different, yeah. right? They learn different. They do different things. So it's it's very time consuming. It's very rewarding, especially when you can make money at it and you can make investors money and things are going well and you got these technologies that you're applying specifically and you got the before and after results and you're mass balancing the thing and you're like, look at that, we're cleaning it up. Yeah. BS and W went from 0.5 to 0.01. Like, here we go. Yeah. And then there's, you know, the downfalls and shit. <laughs> That just sucks. And then there's the tubing leak that just <laughs> ruins everything, right? You're getting all excited. We're uh, making progress. We're cleaning it up. And uh, now the well's not pumping. We got a hole in the tubing. So dude, parted Get, rod. Parted yeah. rod. What a fun call that is. Yeah. It usually happens on a Saturday. Yeah. You know? yeah. <laughs> Always the worst. Out so. to dinner with the wife. Yeah. <laughs> well's got a failure. What do you want me to do? Interesting. So what, what do you think about operations? I mean, so what, what, what's your biggest learning lesson in doing this, just generally trying to keep wells running, managing field personnel? Do you manage them yourself or do yeah. you have some other people? Who, who do the field personnel call when there's an issue and we need a decision, especially when it comes to expenses? Me. You. Yeah. Okay. Yep. So I'm the and what, what have you learned in managing this sort of thing? Does it, does it go smooth? I mean, sometimes you have yeah. wells that run pretty smooth. Yeah. So my the first lease, I go out there once a weekend with I take my kids because I'm gonna t- I'm gonna teach them. I like that a lot of That's things. That's great. Through, they're gonna grow up, right? And my kids wake up on Saturday or Sunday and they're like, "We're gonna go I see." I need to get your kids in my class. Let's yeah, get, let's man. train them early. They can be, Heck yeah! It's like putting a golf club in Tiger Woods' hands. You know, when he's two years old, you know, he's gotta teach them. There you go. Things, there man. you go. We gotta Gosh, pour into their mind. You That's gotta. it. I just yeah, provide them with an opportunity of learning all these things a lot sooner than I did. Uh, but don't get all stressed out about it. Don't let it take over your life. You For know? sure. Um, there's a balance there. But yeah, I was kind of the same. That we Not much going on until after high school. And then I started figuring things out and getting a lot more applied in life. So my kids are like, we're going to go make oil today? I'm like, let's go. That's fun. Let's go go take some samples off the wellhead. <laughs> yeah. So check your time. Your, you know, these things all pump off, right? These shallow oil fields. There's a big volume problem in these things. How do you, how do you set your timers? You have uh, timer. You don't have POCs, pump off controllers, do no, you? No. How do you set your timers? You just just based on pumper experience, or what are you doing to set it? Well, you spend days and days, and you're sitting there, and you're like, oh, you hear that checking check the pump valve. action. <laughs> And you're like, uh-oh, getting too much gas. Yeah, there's faster ways to do it. <laughs> oh, dude, you teach know. me. Teach well, you buy me. some diagnostic equipment. Oh, uh, dude. I had no idea that stuff even existed. Really? Until like a year oh. into it. They're okay. like, yeah, you can do a, a fluid level shot. I'm like, oh, cool. Like, what are we, what are we doing there? And they're like, <laughs> what is it? Well, that's how you know how much freaking fluid you got in your casing. And, and then you shoot it, you pump it. You think you're pumped off, shoot it again. Then you then you shoot it after maybe a, a day and then see how fast you got your fluid back, you know. Yeah. And that'll give you an idea of where you need to set your timer. I'm like, and, and, and a better way to do it is a dynamometer, though, to set your timer. If the well is pumped off, you get it to a pumped off state. So dynamometer, you hook up on the top rod. It's measuring the load versus position uh, on the top rod, your polish rod. So it's basically the load on your pumping unit as it strokes around, right? And yeah. it creates a plot. And then we can calculate what's happening downhole at the pump plunger. But you can see based on the downhole cards, I don't know if you've gotten to that in my course, but a rectangular card is good. That means yeah. your pump is full of liquid uh, and you can see a fluid pound. And so you can, what you can do is you get the well to a pumped off state 
you could do a pump off ratio test. So you get it to a pumped off state and then you turn the well off for a predetermined amount of time, let's say five minutes, and then you turn it back on and it should have 100% fillage until it pumps back off. And you're just gonna look at the ratio of time it took to get to be back. So let's say you turn it off five minutes, you turn it back on, it takes 10 minutes to pump back off. Right. You just do a ratio of 10 divided by the total time, 10 divided by 15. And so that's gonna give you your runtime about 67%. So the dynamometer is actually better because you're actually looking, when it comes to fluid level shots, they can be off a little bit. It, I won't go into any detail. It, they're very accurate as long as you've interpreted it accurately and the input is yeah. accurate. Uh, but uh, when it comes to the dynamometer test, you're actually looking at what is the plunger doing? When is the fluid load released? And based on that, you can very easily set your... So the best way to do it would be a pump-off ratio test with a dynamometer system, and then you can set the runtime at that point. And then wow. you could come back. Let's say the well is running 80%. You do a pump-off ratio test. It shows it should be about 55%. You leave it there. If you come back a couple of days later, then shoot a fluid level. Am I staying pumped off? If I'm staying pumped off, well, then yeah, the runtime, I dropped the runtime from 80 yeah. to 55, and I'm, I'm in the good. I'm saving money. I'm not damaging the equipment. Uh, but if you see that, no, a little fluid level has built up, well, then you're a little bit low, and you can just tweak it a little bit higher, and then you're, you're good to go. And for the most part, you get it set once, and it, you know, it's going to be a good runtime until the amount of inflow from the reservoir changes, right? Yeah. In your case, you're hoping to get more fluid from the reservoir by cleaning it up. Most of the time, it's it depletes, it drops off. Should be the same runtime in that case, or maybe your pump starts to wear. So if your pump is not as efficient, now we need more runtime to make the same production because we have more slippage occurring downhole. So, all right, for people that are just listening, can't really see a, a, a diagram or anything, you have the casing, which is usually like four and a half inch hole, five and a four half and a half inch or five and a half yeah, or seven bang. inch, usually seven inch hole. That's, that's it's usually up in the box end for some reason. They have bigger, inches? yeah, that's, that's nice. It's luxury, hole, it costs more money to drill. But what's in, your in case, tubing size in a seven? Well, they, they do the same thing, two and seven eighths? usually two and seven eighths, yeah. So, what's but the I don't, um, I don't exactly know why they just do it up there more, more deep pressure, you know, they, they have some other zones up there that maybe create issues. There's some salt zones that they drill through, and I don't know if it has something to do with that. Uh, they run heavier in a lot of parts of the Bach in North Dakota, Montana, they run some heavier, heavier weight casing to prevent casing collapse. And I don't know if that's something to do with that or what it has to do with, but seven inch casing is more expensive to drill, but it gives you a lot more room to work with when it comes to. Um, you know, for example, gas separation, or if you ever have to do a fishing job, or if you want to run a extra large size gas separator, I mean, you have lots of, you have lots of things you can do with it. It's just more expensive, but down here, it's primarily five and a half. Okay. In, so in the Permian with, basin. Let's run with a five and a half casing. That's a five and a half inch hole. That's the diameter. And it's going to go down to just call it 3000 feet. Bang. TD's at 3000 feet. And there's a bridge plug at the bottom of that thing. Boom, plug back depth on the bridge plug, 3,000 feet, five and a half inch hole. Yeah. That's steel casing straight to 3,000 feet, right? Yep. Inside the five and a half inch hole is your two. And, and remember, three five and a half is the outside diameter. So the inside diameter is going to be less. Oh, so we're measuring the out. Yeah, you didn't know this? Come on. Come so on. This, so, and it depends on the casing weight. So you measure casing by the outside diameter because we have to get it to go down in. And so the thickness of the casing is going to reduce the right. ID or the drift diameter. The How drift diameter is what you could should be able to easily fit a, a tool down through. And that's going to be a little bit smaller than the ID because casing is not always fully um, 
symmetric. You know, it can be a little bit eccentric to some degree. Like so, so you've got, and I don't even know what the idea of five and a half inch casing is. Let's just say it's like 4.6 or four. Actually, I think it's like 4.9. I think it's like 4.9. Yeah. I think it's around there, something around that. And then you're running two and three eighths tubing. Yep. Okay. And now that's the OD of the body of the tubing. Two and three eighths or two and seven eighths. Now that's the OD of the body, but then you have the collars, which are upset. Yeah, usually. Usually. I mean, almost always. That's the typical type of collars. Right. Um, and, and what so, are those? Like three inch or something? What's the upset go to? Um, two and three eighths to... I would have to even... I would have to look. So probably three, you know, for what? Two and two and three eighths? It's probably around three inch, a little bit more, something Yo, like that. You think it gets all the way past three inches? Yeah, I think it's a little bit more. Wow. You know, if you... Uh, it's, it's on my brochure, that six page. I got yeah. a six page rod pumping brochure. I have the uh, ID awesome. of casings and I have the OD of tubings and the, the size of the collars. It's also for rods. Did you draw all that stuff? I did. Man. It took a while. Dude, you did a great job with that stuff. I, I, need, to, I need to update it. It's a fantastic... Uh, so it's a six page rod pumping brochure that goes into uh, just all the basics of like right. the most important concepts, but also on page five, it has a... Uh, uh, a whole list of tables of everything important when it comes to like um, you know your rod string, the diameters, the weight of rods, the size of rod boxes, also the maximum tension you can pull, and then it goes into casing dimensions, right? You know capacities, also tubing. Is that downloadable, or do you have to buy that? Yeah, you can download it on my website, downholediagnostic.com. Yeah, I think you should sell that thing for like nine ninety nine. It was my marketing material. You know, I came out, I thought I need marketing material, but nobody wants marketing material, so I'll make something helpful, and then I'll just put my logo on it. And it'll get me some it's credibility. Yeah, it's good. It's good. So, um, all right, back to the hole real quick. Yeah. Let's just try to simplify this thing. Someone can visualize this. You got the five and a half inch hole that's actually 4.9, whatever, yeah. inner diameter. Then you got two and three eighths sitting on the inside of that. So that's your production tubing. That's how you're getting fluid out of the bottom of the hole, outside of the two and three eighths to the 4.9 inner diameter of your casing is your annulus. That's the space that you can get fluid from the reservoir. And it's kind of, it, it, the, the reservoir is naturally going to have some pressure. It's going to start filling up that casing above where you set your pump, which yep. is the bottom of the tubing, set your seat nipple and then your pump. So you're, when you shoot a fluid level, it's going into the casing, the sonic wave is traveling down the, the casing. It's hitting the collars. So you see when it hits the collars, and then at some point it gets absorbed by the fluid level. It reflects off the fluid level. So, so there's a reflection so on the fluid. So it's just, it's got a microphone on it. You create a pulse and boom, boom, boom. You know, you shoot something down the well. So it's an energy pulse. And as it's, it's, an it's actually, it's, it's an air blast. It's usually CO2 or nitrogen ah. and it creates a little compressive wave of the molecules. Yeah. So the gas you're shooting doesn't physically travel down to the fluid level, but it creates a little compressive wave. And so all the gas molecules start bumping into each other. It goes down, it reflects off any change in cross-sectional area. Any significant change will be reflected back. The larger the change in cross-sectional area, the more energy is reflected back. There's a microphone in the bottom of the gun, but so it's all coming back to a microphone and then uh, you'll see tubing collars and you'll see any significant changes and then the fluid level. And based on uh, how long it took for that pressure pulse to go down and reflect and come back to the microphone and how fast, this is the key, this is what most people forget, it's very easy usually to get a fluid level kick 
on an acoustic trace. If you see what it looks like, it's like a definitive thing. It's usually quite easy to identify. What's important is you have to understand the acoustic velocity. How fast is that pressure wave traveling? And that's dependent on several different factors. Well, it's dependent on three factors. It's the composition of the gas. So do you have more methane or ethane or propane? Or, or do you also have other... Um, ammonia. No, no, ammonia. That doesn't sound like a good well. I don't know. Never H2S. heard of it. Yeah, yeah, but CO2, H2S, do you have other uh, impurities you? in there? That, that's going to affect it. Um, and then it's the temperature and the pressure. That's going to, all three of those are going to affect, and probably the composition the most, it's going to affect how fast that pressure wave travels. So we have to identify the fluid level kick and know how fast it's traveling to calculate the depth to that fluid level kick. And we're typically doing that by calibrating the tubing collars. So those tubing collars are sending reflections back to the microphone, and we can identify those tubing collars in the software. The software will usually pick it out and uh, quite well. You just want to verify it. And then knowing how long the tubing is if you look at the tubing tally what was ran into the well we ran you know 155 joints of this length you yep. can calculate the average so it'll count up the tubing colors you know the average length of tubing and therefore we can calibrate that acoustic velocity to know uh, what is the depth of that kick that we're seeing from surface yep That's and so you can identify is the well pumped off or is it not pumped off yep you can also see other things sometimes that are you know, um, unusual, you right. know, for example, you might see an upkick really high up the hole that could be due to a casing leak, something right. like that. That's right. unexpected. Now, if you see a casing leak, that probably means there's not fluid coming in and it might not even be a casing leak. If it's an upkick, it could be a, uh, that pressure waves going down and it's seeing an increase in area at a certain point. The question is, is where's that pressure wave seeing an increase? If there's nothing in the design of the well that should cause that, you know, for example, you can have a well that goes from two and seven eighths tubing down to two and three eighths tubing. Gee. Okay. And, and, if, and, and you might do that because you have a liner top or something to where you can't fit two and seven eighths tubing down into it. So this would be called a hybrid tubing string where you go from two and seven eighths to two and three eighths. Wow. But at that point right there, when you go from two and seven eighths to two and three eighths, there's a bigger increase in cross-sectional area. The yeah. clearance opens in the annulus and that will send back a upkick. And so if that's what your tubing design is and you see it there, well, then you know what you're seeing. But if there's not supposed to be an increase in area, it could wow. be either a casing leak or a tubing leak. If the well's producing fluid to surface, it probably shouldn't be a tubing leak because my, whole, my tubing's holding pressure. Yeah. So it's probably breaking into the casing. Then the question is, is what is it? And a lot of times it's a, you know, maybe it's an old casing leak that was squeezed with cement, but it'll show up on the acoustic trace. Yeah. And sometimes people don't even know because they don't have good records. You know, right. you buy wells, you get these crappy records, oh, you have man, no idea what's going on. Yeah. And you find out that there, there was something that occurred there, you yeah. know? So yeah, it's really interesting. Uh, it's amazing equipment because it's so simple and cheap. You just have to have it and know how to apply it. How much for fluid level shooting, using the acoustics, just pure acoustics, not the dynamometer, if you're just using that, how important would it be to have some kind of chromatography machine where you can hook it up to the two inch or the backside real quick and it can tell you here you got mostly methane, you got some butane, got some propane. Here's the temperature, you know, those things, those parameters you were talking about that can kind of affect the way the sound. So it's travels. usually not important as long as you, there's three different ways to calculate the acoustic velocity. And so the primary way is you calibrate to the tubing collars, as I just described. The second way is if there's a downhole marker, if there's a kick downhole and you know what it is, like if you see a little down kick and then a big down kick and that little one, you, you know, is the TAC. Okay, you can identify that and the software can calculate the acoustic velocity based on saying that kick, I know what it is, I know what depth it is, and the software says, great, I know how long it takes to get there and back, and it will calculate the acoustic velocity. The third method is that you can approximate 
you can just make you can approximate the acoustic velocity maybe from an offset well or you can approximate it from the composition of the gas so what you're talking about with a a gas chromatograph um you know that's measuring the composition and it could be valuable in that case but usually you don't need that because we're calibrating the colors or the downhole marker those are the two preferred methods the other thing to keep in mind though is what you're producing at surface might not exactly be usually it's going to be representative as long as the well is constantly flowing gas up what you measure at surface is going to be what's the general composition downhole but there's up in the bakken it's really interesting there's segregated gases in the annulus and so you'll have lots of more methane at surface okay like really high gravity gas and the acoustic velocity moves faster and then as it's coming down whole it's the, the the it's heavier so there's heavier gas trapped down Whoa. in the annulus and so the speed of that uh, acoustic wave is faster and then it slows down all the way down to the bottom which actually makes it very difficult <clears throat> to accurately calculate the depth okay. of that fluid level I've only seen that in the bakken Whoa. so that'll never uh, maybe I've seen it a couple times here, but not to a significant degree up there. You see it extreme where wow. it's a significant difference in how fast that wave's traveling. So pretty cool. Yeah, so, yeah, it's interesting. Tubing, uh, uh, fluid level shot, boom, using acoustics, cool, get to collars, get an idea on fluid. But then you got the dynamometer, and now you hook that up to the polish rod above the stuffing box. Yep, top rod. So it's measuring basically the weight on the pumping unit as it moves around through the stroke. So it's so measuring the, the weight. weight. So there's two ways to measure it. So the best, most accurate, which is not commonly done. You've seen a POC, right? Pump off control. Yeah. You've seen it in a textbook, an image. You know what I'm talking about? So it has a load cell. So in between the carrier bar that has the bridle wires, okay. right? And you have your polish rod clamp. Yep. If you were able to lift that polish rod clamp up and create separation between the clamp and the carrier bar, you can slide in a load cell there and then you stick the weight of the oh, cool. string back on. So it's, it's physically weighing the weight yeah. of what the, it, the load is on that pumping unit or the top rod, it's the same, same weight, right? And so there are, that's how pump off controllers typically do it. If you're using a pump off controller that draws dynamometer cars, that's how it's doing it. Um, there are two different type of in, uh, temporary install dynamometers. One is the exact same thing, but that's, it's a pain in the ass because you have to stack the rods out on the wellhead to slide it in. Okay. So it takes about 20 minutes to install and 20 minutes to run it. How do you, uh, you so what you do is you set a polish rod clamp lower, say right above um, you know, if you have a, let's say you have a polish rod liner, do you typically have oh, polish rod liners? Yeah. So you would pull the polish rod liner down. So at the bottom of the stroke, let's say the polish rod liner is this far above the stuffing box. Yep. Okay. So you would, you would loosen it up. You would yep. chain it off on the wellhead. You turn the pumping unit on and you're going to pull that polish oh rod liner gosh. down, say eight inches. And then you're going to put a clamp and right there. The break. Yeah. 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 But you're going to pull the polish rod liner down, clamp it off right there. And then you're going to turn the unit on and the next stroke, it's going to stack. It's going to slam. Well, it's going to hit the stuffing box. And you can stack it out on the stuffing box if your rod string weight is not too high. If you have a deep, heavy well, it's probably not a good idea because you can bend the bolts. And so there's a, a protective device that you can put on that you stack off that's just pure, pure steel. And you're basically using the energy of the pumping unit to wow. come into that stack yeah. off stand and create, it then creates separation up there at the carrier bar between the clamps. So you can slide it in, but watch your fingers you have to have a working break and it takes a lot of time to install and uninstall and you can break things that's the that's the problem with that now there's another temporary install dynamometer um 
And this one is basically, it's measuring the change in diameter of the polish rod. You just screw it onto the polish rod and it's just basically, it's measuring the change in diameter of the polish rod as it strokes up and down. And there's a corresponding load, uh, axial load that is causing that change in diameter. Okay. So imagine if you have a rubber band, let's say it was a circular rubber band and you pull it, it starts to get thinner, right? As you pull it out, mm -hmm. because there's a certain decrease in the diameter of that. Uh, relative to whatever load is causing. That's exactly what it's doing. It's measuring a small change in diameter at surface, which you cannot see. Wow, no, yeah. Yeah, it, it's just like a little like uh, device. It's, it's just measuring that, and it's converting that to a load. And with this type of dynamometer, this is what everybody uses if you're using a temporary install one just to try and see what the cards look like quickly. Yeah. And this one you can install without even turning the unit off. So wow. the unit could be running and you get up there and you just screw it on, you get it kind of calibrated and then wow. you can get it installed within a, now, a, a minute and you're catching What if you have cards. one of those polish rod sleeves? Do you have to do this? It doesn't like the liner? Do the liner. It, have to, it has to be, the liner is not bearing the load. So it has to be on the diameter of the polish rod that's actually measuring, that's yeah. actually experiencing the load that's yeah. occurring downhole. And that's fantastic. It's what everybody uses because it is, it's got limitations to it. Um, which I won't go into. I go into it in my course. There's differences between the two. It's not as accurate in certain circumstances. Um, but for the most part, as long as the well's pumping good, it, the cards might not be exactly as beautiful, but they're pretty accurate and it, it's sufficient and it's, you can install it like that. Now, the idea is that you, if your tubing is full of fluid and you have fluid above your pump, then every time that well strokes, you're getting the weight of the fluid that's in the tubing and you're seeing the fluid come into the pump and and it's you're seeing that in the distribution that stretch mm -hmm. you're seeing that in the stretch mm -hmm. yeah so Whoa. it's it's picking up yeah what is the load that is causing that particular diameter change it's it's measuring the diameter change but it's converting it to the load that's occurring downhole and it kind of creates the dynamometer cards in kind of a composite fashion, which I won't discuss, but uh, it's, it's so much easier. It is a phenomenal device. I mean, it's, it's incredibly time-saving. The other advantage to it is that you don't disrupt the well. So if you're doing a dynamometer test, you want to see what the well is doing without disrupting it. So let's say it's a well that runs 100%. Well, if I have to stack the rods out and install that true load cell where I create the separation and slide it in, well, I just put the well was down for 20 minutes as I was yeah. trying to install it. I just gave it 20 minutes downtime. That's yeah. not how the well normally runs. And you're slightly decreasing the stroke length, right, when you do that? No, you're, you're not decreasing time. it. You're raising the rods a little bit, though, is what maybe you're thinking about. You know, yeah. because it's going to be the same stroke length. But if you if your clamp was if your polish rod clamp was sitting on the carrier bar, now yeah. it's sitting three inches higher because yeah. we just inserted a device. But it's still going to be the same stroke okay. length that's occurring. Okay. So... It's interesting. It's yeah. interesting stuff. But what's amazing about both diagnostic tools, so this is what I do for a living, basically, is apply these and try to help companies understand um, how their wells are operating and to try and help them optimize the way that they're operating their wells yeah. or um, make recommendations on downhole equipment changes to operate the wells more efficiently. But what's amazing about both devices is that you can go to a well and get a good, good diagnostic analysis as to how the well is performing in 20 to 30 minutes. And now you know where the well is at as opposed to standing like a monkey, scratching your head, looking at a pressure gauge. For hours. Yeah, for hours. And you don't, you don't truly know. You see pressure swing, but you don't know exactly yeah, yeah. What, is, what is causing it. And it can be deceptive and wells are different. Oh, dude, um, it's so tricky. I was, that was for sure the biggest eye-opener to me as an operator was 
holy shit, when are these wells actually putting oil in the oil tank? Pump, pump actually when i when i first came out of college i was riding around with a pumper named anselmo and he would drive anselmo. by the well anselmo yeah yeah mexican guy it's kind of a mexican name i, I thought it was it's interesting but he'd drive by the well and be like oh yes pumping good pumping good he always <laughs> say this pumping good pumping good and we would go all these wells and i'm like well how do you know it's pumping good pumping yeah. good because it looks different you know like what are you looking at on this pressure gauge he's looking at the pressure gauge and based on his cumulative experience with this well right you know he's been on this route for five years he knows the wells in and out and based on his experience like these wells have this type of pump action normally and this well has a different one but i know when it's pumping good because i know how the well normally acts to an outsider it's like i don't see any correlation yeah. with what you're saying is good yeah you know and so but really dynamometers take out the question of how it's performing because you can see it in the dynamometer card and the shape of the downhole dynamometer card will tell you if the pump is in good condition it'll also tell you if the pump is warm it'll tell you if there's gas interference if there's yeah. fluid pound if you have a tag occurring at the bottom of the stroke the top of the stroke if the pump isn't properly spaced yeah. you can see if there's trash in the valves you can see everything so it takes out the guesswork that you do when you're looking at just a pressure gauge so one of the best wells that i got access to right away um we would run it and then turn it off and then just open up the one inch before turning the unit back on and there'd be just you know what i mean like gas out of the one inch i'm like gosh damn well and, why is there gas uh-huh and then I, and i'm going that's not good because all that gas got to go to the production line and then you got the gun barrel eventually that'll vent it off but i mean to have all that gas in with the emulsion and all that stuff while you're trying like i need that out how am i going to get this gas off the out of the tubing and i finally run why was the, gas in the tubing well the formation the formation but why is it okay so there's two reasons but you shouldn't ideally unless gas was going through the pump in solution okay and then breaking out which is probably not the case in a rod pumping well we have low bottom hole pressures and so the usually you don't have much gas especially if you got a well pumped off which i imagine your wells are but either you have gas interference so you have fluid above the pump and free gas is getting into the uh, intake of the pump because you don't have a good downhole gas separator or you're pounding fluid a lot of the day and if you're pounding fluid there's not enough liquid to fill the pump barrel and so it just sucks in gas from the annulus mm. the fluid levels at the intake there's not enough liquid so it's just constantly sucking in gas and it has to compress that gas and it has to get pushed up through the pump into the tubing and that's what you're seeing because you yeah. should if things are going well a good gas separator and not over pumping your well and sucking in gas from the annulus you shouldn't have a lot of gas you shouldn't theoretically so you would have see none. you would see gas coming out the backside I'm like, okay, so that's the best we can do there. But the original operator put the pump above the perfs, and I knew that. And so I'm like, huh, so as, as the gas is coming out of the perfs and trying to fractionate up to the annulus, the pump is sucking some of that gas that's coming in along with the fluid that's coming in from the purse that would be gas interference. if you got fluid above your pump and gas is getting in you got gas interference so Which, then i talked to the pump maker or the pump rebuilder and say, he goes get this gas out of my pump yeah he's like well build me a pump that doesn't accept gas it's like a bouncer right 
like a bouncer at the door gas no no no, no. You, yes you go back i need a gas liquid bouncer. oil oil come in yeah a gas bouncer he's like well <laughs> you got bouncer. a you got a, be a good name for a tool i think but you got a perforated sub on it i go yeah and he's like and a mud anchor yeah uh all you can do is what he told me and this is all i did is drop try to drop the pump below the purse yeah that's that's the best gas operation and what happened oh dude picked up production did you yeah yeah that's exactly it still have gas on the tubing it's still a gassy well you still you know you see it it could be now that you're over pumping the well though i think i definitely am and if you don't have dynamometer test you probably are because people usually don't under pump they over pump because you, you understand there's a certain amount of production and like if I run the well 100%, I make this production. If I run it on 50%, I'm making less. So run it more to make sure you get all the production. People usually over pump so as I, opposed to under pump. My, eventually I get some things worked out. It's better. I know I got less gas interference. I'm just learning this stuff, not even knowing that you were out there that could teach me this a long time ago. And then I go, all right, let's just pump this thing 24-7 for seven days. Let's see what happens. And that was pretty interesting experience. And then I go, all right, now let's uh, pump it for eight hours. Let it sit for eight hours. Pump it for eight hours. Let it sit for, did that for like four or five days. And then I did uh, like 30 minutes on, hour off, 30 minutes on, hour off. And that's what I ended up going with was more of a, not going to pump it all day because it was sitting there and just heating up. And and then all of a sudden fluid would flush back in and we'd start making fluid again. But they were t- like a lot of time of just like you're doing nothing here. See, what, what's interesting though is that you're looking at fluid flushing back in, but you're looking at surface, right? right? How else are you telling a fluid is coming in the tubing? What's happening at the top of your tubing might not be exactly what's happening at the bottom of your tubing. Sure. And that's what a dynamometer test is going <laughs> to tell you, you see? Because sometimes you have, let's say your fluid column is, is you have, your tubing's completely full of liquid, okay? And if you start over pumping the well, you start sucking in the gas from the annulus. As that gas comes into the bottom of your tubing, it's compressed. Gas is compressible. Right. And so higher pressure at the very bottom of your tubing, imagine swimming down 3,000 feet in liquid. It's a very high pressure, right? And as that gas migrates up the tubing, it starts to expand because there's lower hydrostatic pressure on it. It can then flow out the top of the tubing. And so maybe let's say the top 300 feet of your tubing is now full of gas because it flowed out the top of your tubing and you're opening up the one inch gas coming off, but that doesn't necessarily correspond to actually what's happening down at your pump because your tubing flowed off and then it's going to maybe start to produce liquid fine, perfectly, but you're still just seeing gas. And so that's the dynamometer looking what's happening down hole on the, on the pump plunger. Um, But the advantage of these tools, like if you run around and do a test on all of your wells, okay, you found a well that had gas interference and you were able to remediate it and production went up. If you do a simple fluid level and dynamometer test on all your wells, you can figure out, okay, these wells have gas interference. The next time you pull the well, okay, people don't usually proactively pull it, but next time it has a failure mm-hmm. and I have to pull it, I'm going to look at my downhole design and I'm going to change something to try and remediate that. If you don't know you have a problem, you're not going to fix it. Yep. You're going to replace the bad joint right you're going to replace the broken rod and you're going to run it back in the same because you don't know there's a problem but if you have the data if you get the feedback from the well you can then optimize it when you pull the equipment out anchor i need there's all sorts of options and so you just have to know and gas interference is a huge one especially in a lot of old poor boy stuff because 
I don't know. Some of the old timers just didn't believe in gas separators. Yeah. One guy told me that uh, we don't have good hands these days. We can't trust them to run it incorrectly. And it's like you're talking about running a perforated pipe in like a joint with a bull plug on bottom. Like how complicated is this? But he's like, yeah, he didn't believe in it. Pump, but they can't drop. Yeah, it. it's unbelievable. And I was just like, you know, he was just opposed to it for some reason. But I see yeah. a lot of these old timers. They don't know what they're doing. Interesting. Uh, you, you know, and I shouldn't say that they're probably maybe very good at operating wells and being efficient and you know, cost effective, but there's some simple things when it comes to the actual principles of a simple change can remove a lot of the problems that you're having and it'll save you, you'll make more production so you have more income and you can also run the well less and you're gonna reduce your expenses. You're gonna increase that difference between the two and your profits will be up. So it's feedback, it's feedback from the wells. A lot of people just operate wells and they yeah. don't get feedback. Oh, I know, dude. And it, yeah, the feedback is, well, the tank's not filling up as fast as I thought it was going to. Yeah, and it's like, just, well, but, but again, remember, like your tubing can blow dry. And then as the well's pumping good, you only have gas at the top because it's refilling the tubing. Yeah. And you're not necessarily understanding that. What's happening at surface is not Jeez. necessarily what's happening down hole. So you're you got to get your mind down hole. You yeah. got to get your mind down hole. Dude, I can't. Yeah, what we we got to do another visit to San Antonio. Bring your equipment. Yeah, you know, get you paid for this, and just some come check out these crazy little shallow wells. Everybody's, you know, one of the big mysteries is must just be out of fluid. You know, these shallow zones just run out of fluid. But dude, I'll go to some wells, and it seems like no, you can run this thing twenty four seven. It's putting out a bunch yeah. of fluid. Go to the tank, and it's it might be a lot of brine, and a little bit of oil. But it's connected to something that just keeps on giving. So it's like, okay, you got plenty of fluid yeah. in some parts of this system. Maybe it's all, it's all different, you know. Yeah. Are these wells fracked? Are they just yeah. perforated? Sometimes you don't know where that frack go. You don't know where that frack goes. You yeah. know, you hope it stays in zone, but sometimes you break higher or lower into water zone, and yeah. and there's a lot there's differences. of subtle little fractures in these areas that no one pays attention mm -hmm. to. It's quite complicated when you get down to the rocks, yep. especially with a, a frack wing, though. It's not just a perforation where you know where you're, theoretically, you know where you're perforating. A frack wing, you don't know where it grows. Yeah. It's going to grow the path of least resistance, but what, what is that? And you hope, you know, typically, especially if you're near a water zone, you, you, want, a, you want a a boundary layer that's not going to be easily fractured yeah. to contain it. That's but sometimes that happens, and sometimes it's not even that. It might be that you have an old offset well that's shut in that's not producing and maybe it has a casing leak that's falling in from a higher zone it's going into the well going down to the perforations and then flooding over Jeez. through zone to your well sure. and so you're getting it's not the well you're producing that has a casing leak maybe that other one over there has a casing leak and it's flooding out and so you have a lot more fluid so there's all sorts of differences oh, and man. yeah so five years in to the company this is all discovery this one company mm-hmm you're learning all kinds of stuff out in the field. You're learning pulling units. You're using the, all this stuff. And, yeah. and they're, they're also hired, hired you specifically to give you the right tools like this. They, they were aware of the dynamometer. No, 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 no. I had to talk uh, them into it. So what's interesting is I, so when I came out, I wanted to apply myself, right? And I've never been genius, I would say, in like, uh, like you know, genetically, like naturally smart, but I've always overcome it with hard work. Yeah. And I, and I wanted, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> And I wanted, to, I, I wanted to apply myself, so I started studying rod pumping systems because that was 90% of what we produced. Oh, and so I wanted to understand the system. So uh, single man, no kids, nights and weekends, I was constantly reading everything I could on them. And it was about two years in, I was sitting in the downtown library in Midland, 
and uh, I was reading the same old theory. I, I, I knew all this stuff at this point, right? I knew everything about it theoretically. And I was like, why am I, it was boring. I was like, why am I in here? Like I work for an operator. We have wells five, uh, 15 miles south of here. Why am I not learning? Why don't I take the library to the field and go study at the wells? So I talked my company into buying the echometer diagnostic equipment, fluid wow. level gun, dynamometer. And then I started playing a lot with the wells. Wow. And uh, anyways, they made me the production manager the last two years. And then I realized that, you know, I'm, I know a lot of this. I could do something with this. And I started my company, Downhole Diagnostic, in 2014. And then we had the OPEC, you know, American yeah. production, price wars. And then the price collapsed. And it was difficult. But then I got on my feet. And I've, had a, I've been doing it for 10 years now. Jeez, and it's worked out dude. well. Yeah. And look at me now. Who would have known? Just reading yeah. a bunch of papers on rod pumping. And <laughs> I'm supposedly some sort of rod pumping expert or something yes, like that. Are. So, yes, you yeah. are. Let's get into the drill down segment. BB podcast with Sean Dossey from Downhole Diagnostic. 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 Yeah. I always want to put it. Everybody S does, and I wish I put an S on it. <laughs> I made a mistake. Everybody does. But if you want to go to my website, downholediagnostic.com. Yeah. And the pump uh, website, rodpumpingoptimization.com. Yeah, it's my online course, 50 hour online rod puppy course which i have got to sit down through at least a few hours yeah of what was going on kind of went in and, and pinpointed some of the things that i thought we were kind of experiencing in this lease and i thought man i can get a better idea of of what could potentially be going on here i need to get some sean dossi education and so i kind of yeah went in and and, and uh, stumbled into your uh, rap session oh yeah yeah <laughs> i like big bubbles dude can we yeah. get a little of that right yeah, now yeah i like big bubbles and i cannot lie because little bubbles won't comply when a big bubble sucks in my separator it can escape because its velocity is greater <laughs> wow was that was that exciting to find <laughs> that was that dude. was uh yeah I thought that, that was, was that was my creative genius in the course right there yeah. so i gotta add a little humor in there so right yeah it really broke but it, it sticks it sticks with you that's the funny thing about a little humor it that's a point you won't forget. Big yeah. bubbles are better when it comes to gas separation because they have a higher, faster rise velocity. They want to so get it's out. easier for them to get out of the gas separator. Yeah, yeah so no, that was you. You walked through those concepts, and it was like, man, you know, you're you're kind of wrapping your mind and all that, and then boom, you had this kind of mental break where you do the. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. Very good. well done. Thank you. The the whole course is is really really awesome. The the how easy it is to get online, to get back where you were, um, how it transitions from one chapter to the next. You don't need to press a bunch of buttons and figure it out. It just kind of does it. You know, it's almost like watching a Netflix series. Yeah. You just kind of go to the next episode. So there were you know a lot of a lot of great stuff in that, and I haven't gone through the whole thing uh, as I I wish I. I could 50 hours is hard to it is hard to find but every now and then plugging in and certainly with some of the pinpointing like man what what what, what, what am I experiencing here I looked at your your outline I'm like oh man chapter 10.1 I even asked you and you you brought me some feedback on where I could find some of this stuff so the course is really good but let's rock that back how did you come up with the idea and what was it about your 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 current your exact situation at the time when you said i'm gonna go all in on this i'm gonna create a business and i'm gonna go i'm gonna go for this uh so yeah i'm a, I'm a contractor work goes up and work goes down and sometimes i'm really busy and sometimes i'm not and it was uh four and a half years ago and so i'm still working on the course i'm 
further improving. I'm in the finalized recording session here, and I'm about about halfway through the finalized recording. So uh, <laughs> some of the, the latter parts of the course and the beginning of the course are finalized. But anyways, so it was four and a half years ago, I was a little slow. I was talking to my brother, and he said, well, why don't you make an online course about that topic? You know, you got free time. Make an online course about that topic you're passionate about. And I laughed it off at first because it's like, do you know how long that would take, mm-hmm. right? And I, when I go in, I go all in, and I go too hard, and that's why it's 50 hours. 50 hours, though, it's only two hours a week over six months. So if, you, if it's you, me, and a ham sandwich at lunch for, for twice a week, we can, we can get, get through, through it, it together. We can get through it. So, um, but anyways, that was kind of the, uh, the genesis of it. It was like, God, I can't do that. And then it was like, you know what? I can do that. And so it just started off, how do you make an online course? Um, Where did you, know, you go? Like you just started Googling it? You started Well, you started watching a few videos and then uh, really it got down to, okay, make an outline. How, what is the logical flow of topics? And so it goes through in great detail. It's kind of an introductory couple sections that go into a, Lord have mercy, Lord have mercy. So there's a couple of introductory sections and then it goes into great depth in fluid level shots, dynamometer tests, because these are two diagnostic tools that let you see downhole. Very important to understand those. And of course... Uh, most wells, especially for bigger operators, have a pump-off controller. So they have permanent dynamometer cards showing every stroke. So smaller operators like yourself don't, but most companies, especially bigger wells, more expensive wells to repair, have a dynamometer system on them that shows every stroke. So it's important to understand it. But So I go into those two, and then I go into uh, the echometer equipment and software, which is the company that dominates the market for these diagnostic tools and then we go into gas and solid separation where you saw my rap video yeah we go into automation when it comes to setting timers pump off controllers how they work variable speed drives so pump off controller shuts the well down when the fillage drops variable speed drive will slow the well down if the fillage drops below a certain threshold and then it goes into pause there for a second so if your if your pump stroke length and rotations per minute are too fast you draw the fluid down in the wellbore too fast and the fluid coming from reservoir is not fast enough to keep up with the strokes per minute you know, the volume you're moving the capacity of the system is greater than the inflow from the reservoir is what you're saying that's a bit that's a that's definitely a big problem right it's not if long as you properly control your well, if you don't have complete fillage, let's assume there's no gas interference because it simplifies things, but you just adjust the runtime, right? And so we want to match the capacity of the displacement of our pumping system to the fluid coming in. We yeah. don't want to create damaging strokes. A fluid pound right. is a damaging stroke. And we also don't want to waste cycles on our rods. Every, every stroke, there is a uh, an alternating, the fluid load is picked up on the upstroke and it's released on the downstroke. And this is an alternation uh, of loads on a rod string. And that's going to, theoretically, every stroke, your your rod is one stroke closer to failure, right? So you don't want to waste strokes, right? So we don't want to, um, we don't want to damage the pump or the rods and create buckling. We don't want to waste the strokes. And also we don't want to waste electricity. So if you have a system that's higher capacity, you just turn the well off. You could also... If your unit's running really fast for say 20% of the day with a fast strokes per minute, you can also slow it down. Yes. And now it might need to run 40% of the day, but you still need to have that timer there to appropriately turn it on and off so See, you're not damaging right. your equipment. Yeah, damaging the equipment, totally get, understand that. But for me, I think pulling fluid 
from the pump faster than the formation wants to push fluid, pick, it picks up particles that maybe could be sat okay. back, and you're going to start bringing that in. You got turbulent flow that's it's causing all this unconsolidated. Anything that's, that's interesting. Okay, so to suck on the formation slower, basically. Yes. To slowly, more yeah, slowly. I think the slower Slow the better. and smooth. I absolutely agree. As long as you can pump the well off. Slow and smooth. That's the name of the game. Like you don't want to jerk your equipment on and off and you don't want it running fast because if you do pound fluid, it's going to be a harder pound as opposed to if your unit's running slower, a fluid pound can be much more gentle, right? And so there's, there's a lot of advantages to running slow, including gas separation. Your gas separation is improved if you can run the well slow. slower for more of the day, yes. assuming you, can, you have enough runtime or capacity to keep the well pumped off. So if, all right. You got a pumping unit, you got everything out there, and you've determined it's all going way too effing fast. We need to slow this thing down. The only, the quickest, cheapest thing you can do is change the shiv size on, on the, motor. the motor. Yep. You can also change the shiv on the gearbox, but since it's such a large shiv, it's just not realistic. You would have yeah. to make a huge change on it. To, you would want to make it bigger and yeah. it's already you know i don't depending yeah. on the pumping unit you're already looking yeah. at 24 36 inches yeah and so you're not going to take it to 60 inches Correct. and so it's much more impactful down there on the motor down on the motor size and, and that but what if you want to go slower than you can achieve with the right. smallest shiv that's right what do you do what do you you got to change you? the pumping unit or nope you? nope no you can install there's two ways to do it you can install a variable speed drive, which is going to be probably what you wouldn't do in your case because that's a big piece of automation, might not fit, fit into your operations. But that you can take the strokes per minute down to whatever you want. The cheapest thing that's not going to be, uh, the cheapest thing would be a jack shaft. So a jack shaft, the way it works, there's plenty of videos in my course, but you have the shiv on the motor that is rotating. You have the small shiv on the motor rotating a bigger shiv, <laughs> and then that's connected over on the jack shaft that's rotating what? a smaller shiv that then connects to what? the... Yeah, yeah. Dude. And you can take it to whatever you want. They do this a lot up in the Bakken because depending on the production rate of the well, they want wells to run more of the day because it gets a freezing in winter. And so you want to keep fluid moving, right? Even if it's yeah. at a slower rate. So if you have a well that only makes 10 barrels of fluid per day, you don't want it running 10% of the day and, and along with the down, yeah, yeah, with a long downtime. So they run them a lot slower up there, especially if they have low production to try and keep the fluid moving. And they do it with these jack shafts? Yeah, they use, well, either the jack shaft, yeah, there's a lot of jack shafts up there or a variable speed drive. So jack shaft is the easiest. It just requires a little installation uh, and a, an additional shiv and an additional set of drive belts. Cause now the motor's driving this larger shiv that's connected on the jack shaft to a small shiv that then drives the gearbox. Yeah, so you got Simple. some, some uh, mechanic, you know, custom things you gotta kind of yeah we need to adjust that yeah i think i do here on, I, I can get this really good i know how to do this i'm an online personality it's just, it's just sinking on me i'm just getting down to here i'm like all right i think i'm good i think i'm good okay all right i almost like could see yeah i was just I'm like chasing it down i just don't want to break this you know it's plastic all right oh i know you these freaking $29. Oh, yeah. Things. Amazon. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Amazon All right. <clears throat> Back to business. What's, yeah. your, what, what, what's on your mind? Well, what's um, on your mind, Troy? 
I'm 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 always looking at pumping wells. Like that's primarily so sexy. I love pumping wells. What, tell, me, tell me more. What I'm looking at. You spend a lot of time out there, right? Yeah. And I'm and and then you start seeing trash coming in and getting caught up in the BPR valve if you have that or you're taking a sample and you see trash at the bottom of the sample and it's like, dude, this is not optimizing what's going on where it's just a matter of time until your pumps are all worn out and you got you're stuck you know and and you, so I'm, I'm constantly just trying to optimize you know and, and mm. understand what the hell's going on so I'm, I'm fascinated with this idea of the jack shaft i need to invest time and attention into the jack shaft you have a, a, a chapter of that you have it's not a, a chapter um you would probably yeah you'd find it somewhere in my course i talk about it several times i would say uh Probably in the variable speed drive section. Nice. You'll find. And you got good images. Yeah, yeah they got videos. Videos of videos the jack shaft. Videos and yeah. How about an installation? Do you have an installation video of a jack shaft? How to install it? Yeah. Uh, no, I do not have a video on that. And I don't even know you if you call around. I don't know exactly. Call around some roustabouts or right. some welders or uh, actually call a pumping unit installation company or a pumping unit maintenance company. They'll they run. might not do it, but they'll they'll be able to lead you down the chain to find out whoever's whoever's doing it. Could but it's just great because there's only there's a certain s uh, minimum diameter you can have on your motor shift. You can't go smaller than that. So you might take the strokes per minute down on a certain well to five strokes per minute, but maybe you want to go down to three and a half. You know, Wh whatever the situation is with the jack shaft, you can basically take it to anything you want. Wow. So it gives yes. you the variability and it's very easy. You just have to install it. And How does the variable drive motor work? So the way it, it takes in, um, it basically takes in, it affects the frequency at, at which it's rotating the motor. Oh. So instead of having a constant rotation of the motor, like you're going to have, so if you just have the power lines yeah. coming in, just direct power, direct power. So it takes it, it turns the, um, AC power to a DC. It then regulates that DC power and then it converts it back to AC to feed to the motor and it adjusts it with that, with a few clicks of the buttons. And what's fun, what's fun about variable speed drives is that you can play around with the well right there and you press a couple buttons and the unit starts running faster or it slows down right in front of you. Yeah. And it's much easier than you have to, as opposed to changing a shiv out. You know, you got to get the roust bouts out here. You might have the belt guard. You got to take it off. You got to loosen up the now motor. You got to change things, gotta... tighten it back up. And wow. so um, it's fun, but interesting. that's so more variable, complication. Is, yeah. it, is it technically then a variable frequency drive? It, it's the same thing. People call them both. So it varies the frequency, but it, in varying the frequency, you're varying the speed. So it's half people call them v, VFDs, variable frequency drive or variable speed drive. And So you have your disconnect to a timer typically timer to motor it goes in between those two so it's going to come off the power and basically what's regulating um yeah i guess the the disconnect to the to timer. the motor what's going to turn the well on and off yeah it's going to be it's going to be there wow. so in the power box so it's deciding now with the pump off controller if the fillage drops below a threshold it shuts the well down to downtime Right with a variable speed drive, you can also go to downtime if it gets below a certain threshold. But you can also slow the strokes per minute down. Jeez. So instead of forcing it straight to downtime, how much can, are these things? Um, I want to say probably with a pump-off controller because you usually have them integrated. You can actually buy standalone ones that people don't realize. So 
if you integrate it with the POC, I think about $10,000 like for all of it. That's with the POC though, functionality too. You can buy standalone ones, I think for probably a couple thousand dollars. And there, it just has a dial. And so you, it, it can be just hooked up to your well with on timer, right? And it's got a dial and you can speed it up or slow it down just by adjusting it where it's got some little punch-in interface. And I think those are probably a couple thousand dollars maybe two three thousand i'm not exactly sure i haven't priced those out but you that's can freaking awesome it is until you know things break though and that's why sometimes the more things you put on your well you know is it is it justified maybe it's better just to do it the analog way and use a jack shaft as opposed to having some of this additional jewelry that can electrical storm comes or something breaks so but yeah it's it's a great thing to do if you need it and and i, I would use them i think they should be used a lot more honestly jack shafts oh dude there's a lot of wells that run fast. You know, if you have a long stroke length, yeah. you know, let's say you've got a big pumping unit and it, there's advantages to having a long stroke length, especially on a deeper well um, for gas interference and also extending the rod, you know, rod box wear on the tubing um, and also increasing your compression ratio down hole to help with gas interference if you have that sort of thing. But let's say you've got a big stroke pumping unit. You typically don't want to stroke it in and make a short stroke length because there's advantages to the long one. But if you have a hundred and... Uh, you know, uh, let's say 144 inch stroke length, but the well only needs to run a small amount of the day and the slowest you can get it down with the motor shiv is five, six strokes per minute. It's running pretty quick because when you talk about speed, you have to take into consideration strokes per minute and the stroke length of the pumping units, right? right? That dictates how many inches per uh, a minute or feet per minute it's actually moving. Um, and so uh, with this sort of thing, and I just forgot where I was going. Well, what was I? You just reminded me of a, a conversation I had with a guy right when I first bought with this lease. I go, every stroke this thing's making right now, we're standing at the well, right? And it's just doing this little pump jack. Like every stroke it's making right now, how much do you think it's actually putting in the tubing? He goes, ah, maybe a quart. <laughs> maybe a quart every stroke. For a small pumping, you know, with a small pump. Yeah, it depends on the stroke length. I was and like, again, remember, you have to get your mind downhole. You can't just look at the stroke length at surface. It's the downhole stroke length that matters. On a shallow well, your surface stroke length, your downhole stroke length, they're probably similar. Not necessarily true on a deeper well, especially if you have stretchy rods like fiberglass. Wow. And so it's the downhole stroke length that adds to it, but it's also dependent on wow. the pump size. So if you've got a two inch pump versus an inch and a quarter, inch and a quarter. Sh a short stroke length, inch and a quarter pump. Yeah. It's not moving that much fluid, <laughs> you know, it's really not moving that much fluid. That's amazing dude. So to get equipped with a pump jack, as fast as you can and most efficiently way to do it there are there are some options where you can just set up a temporary system and start start the well watch the pump cards and and see what's going on get a better idea of what you have control of if you if you identify that it's pumping too fast then all you can do is really the jack shaft or or run a variable frequency drive and that, I mean, that, that's what you do. Like mm. you, so when, so when, how do you get customers? How do you, how do, how do, yeah. That's a good question for small business owners. Um, I usually get customers that come to me. I figured out long ago that I do not like cold calling. So like showing up in an engineer's office who's busy and he doesn't want to talk to me. And so I quit doing that a long time ago. Kolaches, man. And I, you kolaches. Yeah, yeah. That's what we all need is a few more calories in this, this country, right? Um, and so I figured out a long time ago that I just sit around and I wait for work to come to me. I've got a nice side project that keeps me busy. So if I'm not busy in the field, I got my online course um, that has plenty of work to do. And I'll probably have more courses coming out after that. Um, and so 
really uh it's it's just my website which brings material it's also i mean it's repeat customers you know so i've been around for 10 years i got lots of repeat customers and uh, it's my website and you know my six page brochure people find me though like if you look up fluid level shots and dynamometer tests on the internet you're going to come to my website basically which is amazing because i'm just a one-man operator but i have lots of information and that's how the internet works if you put out good information that's how you know you attract uh, you attract the hits on google promotes your website as a result of that so is that thing still falling it is but i'm gonna figure this out don't you move <laughs> i'm gonna i'm gonna figure this thing out but it's just plastic and i've over tightened these plastics before oh yeah you're gonna strip that thing out i think what i can do is no it's fine i'll keep working with it nah things falling dude i can still see it falling. why right is now. it um the, the 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 beam is too far out and so the mic is it's too heavy it's just too is it heavy. this one right here yep so take that one loose slide the beam in just a little bit just this oh uh oh it's gonna you got okay. it okay slide the beam in oh yeah yeah you weren't kidding about thirty dollar <laughs> No, it was $30 stands here, huh? Uh, now you can loosen that baby up. This one? Yep. Bring it. There we go. There we go. And then tighten her up. Come on, baby. And I you, go to the gym. To, I can... to get it back where you want it, just slide the slide the whole stand towards your leg. All right. How's that? No, it's fine. Good. Perfect. Good. Wire's a little... Con- no, you can't even see it. No, we're production. Here we are, man. Just figuring out downhole diagnostics and microphone diagnostic, microphone placement diagnostic. Oh man, just gotta optimize everything in this world. I need optimization. <laughs> Fuck, man. So, I mean, so that that, that kind of that comment right there kind of goes to where my brain was going with this conversation. You have a really valuable course that you spent a lot of time developing, understanding, and making sure that you're putting something out there that is really helping people uh that there's a serious commitment to that but i i want to preface this by saying i feel like the industry has put almost no value into long-term production i feel like the history of our industry is all about drilling drill 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 flush 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 and then try to offload this to someone else package it up sell it off quarterly returns yeah i would agree to depends on the company you know some people like the company i work for they weren't selling the wells you know their wells they're keeping and so they make some different decisions but a lot of people the wells crooked who cares we're going to produce it with this form of of lift and we're going to get a high production rate we're going to get those curves and we're going to we're going to package it and we're going to sell it off and i would agree with that and that creates a lot of problems and opportunities for people down the road, you know, especially you probably don't have the problem, but there's a lot of crooked wells out there that were drilled crooked that nobody cared about because an ESP does not care about, for the most part, a crooked hole. Yeah. And gas lift certainly does not care about a crooked hole. Rod pump, where rods reciprocate up and down, does care because you're going to have a lot of rod on tubing wear and associated failures. And when those wells get to the end of their economic life, you know, you have low production rates, you're not going to produce it with gas lift or ESP. It's right. not going to be efficient at all. Right. And so you're going to be in rod pump. And so if you can figure out how to economically produce these, you know, and of course economics is a money in, money out. How frequently are the wells failing? Yeah. How much does it cost to fix a failure? 
So that's going to be a big opportunity. Where do you see your business for shallow production, shallow producers? Do you see that being a big part of your business right now or ever? For shallow producers, I don't get as much from shallow producers as I would say for deeper producers, maybe because deeper production is more, uh, more costly, right? You know, bigger operators. And a lot of times it depends. There are so many mom and pops and poor boy operators like yourself who don't know what's happening in their wells. Yeah. And they need, they need this equipment more than anybody. They don't have automation. Yeah. They don't have the staff that has the knowledge, the training, and they just operate the wells and then the well fails and they pull it yeah. and they run it back and they run the well again and then yeah. it fails and they pull it. And so they need this information the most. Right. And, uh, but they're too cheap. So it's funny. They're too cheap to pay for the preventative to get my hands on what I'm doing, but they're not too cheap. When the well fails, they don't say, well, I don't have enough money to pull it. They always have the money to pull it. Yeah. And well, so you have to keep the lights on, right? You got to, well, gotta turn the well, pump. you know, it's people are too busy. We're too busy working to, um, get more efficient in our operations and to do things properly. It's kind of that mentality. So that is the poor boy. Yeah. That is the smile. And I, I say poor boy, not in a disparaging way, but yeah. you know, the smaller operators and I understand because when they write a check, a lot of times the checks you get from them are handwritten, you That's know, right. you, you gave me a check That's handwritten. Right. It's not automated and, and distributed That's out. Right. Like, you know, it's, it's coming from some secretaries writing my address on. So, um, they, they feel the pain of expenses, but they just don't connect the fact that, no. You know, we, a little money up front, you know, uh, what is it? Um, um, an ounce of Benjamin Franklin said this, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure, you know? And okay. so like, like if you can invest a little bit up front to prevent, yeah. you can save so much in the yeah. long run. It's kind of, but dude, I think I truly believe that it's, it's complicated. First of all, like you really got to sit down and think about these equations that you have in these panels, the, what you describe in these, in this course, you know, you got to really sit and think about this stuff. So it is complicated what you do and how you do optimize production. So I think there's, there's a, a problem right away. Like, sure. I don't, I'm just the owner of this thing. I want someone, I got my field guys, like they need to figure this out. Right. Uh, let me let me say one thing real quick. A lot of people that do the work that I do, they go get the fluid level dynamometer test. They get it and they send it back. And it, there's no comments. There's no recommendations. And so they might just be getting data back. And it's like I don't know what to do with. I don't know what to do with. Okay. It. Well, you know that's that's part of the problem of whoever's getting it. The, they should be giving record. They should have the knowledge to be able to give recommendations yep. on what should be done. Like interpret the data, put it into context, and based on this analysis should we change anything yeah. right or everything looks fine we just need to adjust the runtime a little bit or runtime's perfect but it's it's making the analysis because you can monkeys can go hook it up and get data back and just send reports and i except for some companies that like there's people a uh, customer up in oklahoma the people that do my type of work up there they don't know how to do the analysis they Right. They just get the data. They send it to the engineer. He doesn't necessarily know what to make of it. So he hires me. He sends me the data yep. and says, tell me, what do you think? Yes. What, what, what do I take away from this? So it is about applying. It's not about getting information. It's about making it useful. Otherwise, yes. it's of no value. Yes. Right? Dude, so I think there's such a huge market for shallow oil producers. Certainly. That can just somehow streamline, speed up and figure out what equipment they actually need, what data they do need to actually collect, 
to do this prevention for the cure thing. And it wouldn't, I mean, it wouldn't be much, you know, like if you had a fluid level and dynamometer test twice a year, you know, you would be in a pretty good position because you could at least eliminate, you could at least find the wells that are underproducing. Okay. And if they're underproducing, why do we just need more runtime or the pumps worn out? You know, that sort of thing, but you can get a handle on, or maybe they have gas interference. Next time we pull it, we know we need to make a change, right? And then if you just did it a couple times a year, and if you do it in a big package, you get a much better, better deal. You know, if you call me to check one well, I'm going to give you a high minimum charge because you want me to go drive some long distance and I got to do an invoice and I got to get payment and I got to do all these things. But if you give me a package of 40 or 50 and we're going to do it twice a year, it's not that much. And then also the driving is distributed amongst all the wells. So as opposed to me driving 100 miles for one well, that one well pays all of it. But if it's divided by 50 wells, I do work in the summer up in North Dakota, Montana for a customer. And you would think the mileage charge would be, I drive, you know, the mileage charge would be huge. Yeah. And it's not that bad, actually, you know. And, and so because of the fact it's distributed amongst like 400, 500 wells. So even though it's a huge distance up there, yeah. when you actually divide it out, I have lots of wells in West Texas where I go out to check one well and it's much higher mileage, like four times higher yeah, as it is for when you divide it out amongst wow. all those wells. So you can get it efficient. It's just a matter of getting a little bit of data throughout the year so you can make decisions and keep up with your wells and uh, apply it. And so it's not, not that big of a deal, but it's just a matter of getting people to realize sometimes you have to spend a little bit to get feedback to make better decisions, which is going to make you more in the long run. Yeah. No, dude, look, this information is going to, out to all kinds of different people in the industry, right? Most of them may be technical science, geology focused, geophysics, like they don't think facilities, rod pumps, long, long-term production, they're out there finding the big pockets of new discoveries and mm -hmm. that kind of thing. But there are a lot of people I believe that are in the situation that we're in and they just don't know exactly how to break into that and how to start understanding it and i think that's what i wanted to get from this show with the most is out to the 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 listeners is this is an incredibly valuable resource that you can learn so much more about your daily operations as a small oil farmer mm -hmm. right just get the right equipment start gathering that information you're super easy to work with you got a great way of articulating the complexities so dude like the 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 resource is insane so where i want to go with this even further is how can we develop a south texas downhole diagnostic team i want to create a new sean dossie out of utsa or out of somewhere around here who just gets it. I want to buy that equipment. I want to invest in expanding your information, knowledge, and services to South Texas fields. Hmm. I want to do that. How do you want to do that? Okay, I want to do that. Okay, how do you want to do it? Figure out how. So you what can are you? Teach. Yeah, what are you specifically talking about? UTSA. You're talking about like college students. Yeah, and... I'm taking a college student. I'm taking someone who who can sit down and go through your course, get through all that stuff, give them the equipment even, right? Buy the equipment for them. 
I want them to learn everything they can possibly learn and then bang, I want them to get to the field sooner than they realize it when they're sitting in the library learning from you over and over and over and getting all the theoretical. You got to a point where you said, I got to get out to the wells. What am I doing here in the library? I want to get someone sped through that class as fast as possible where they can become Sean Dossie 2.0 under the diagnostic tool. I'm not trying to take your business. I want him to be something you know and, and get uh, uh, these operators need it oh i, I absolutely agree and i don't know you know i get calls around south texas people asking me to come out and uh i don't even actually know anybody down here that's independent doing what i do most companies have it in-house big companies but of course if you're a small operator you don't you don't have the equipment or the expertise to right. acquire it and interpret it and um it is kind of astounding. There's probably somebody out there. I've never come across their website, and I don't know who it is. Um, but I, you know, that would be, I don't know exactly how you would implement that. Um, and I, I would say, you know, if anybody wanted to become me, they could if they took the course and actually paid attention because right. I literally teach everything I know. Uh, but that would be the, a huge advantage for the students because not only are you getting to they, they have a petroleum program at utsa is that right supposedly yeah. supposedly okay so i mean there's nothing more advantageous to understanding wells than being out at the well you know yeah. make it concrete go play around you know close valves do things with yeah. the well um <laughs> that makes it real as opposed yes. to just the textbooks and so i mean that would be a huge advantage i don't know exactly how you would go about doing that but that's all right that's possible we can we can talk about we that work on this we can Obviously but getting the equipment right away that's the first step is well you have to understand i mean you have to understand what you're doing with it it's safe equipment but you know when you talk especially you talk about every everybody with liability nowadays and oh, you know, know getting yeah. some green hand out there that shuts the wrong not even if they don't hurt themselves but if they just shut the tubing in when they're taking the fluid level shot and blow out the stuffing box i mean <laughs> you talk about some things so it is it is good to have a little theory and understanding and a little bit of training like around because we all we all make those mistakes when you're early out in the field. I remember when I when I first came out of university, I was out on a lease and I found a rod pumping well and the casing valve was closed to the flow line. Oh my god! And I said it's not supposed to be that way and it had a handle on it, so I just went up there and I just kicked it open. Well, it had several hundred pounds of pressure behind it. Wow. Somebody accidentally left it closed. Shit. It should have been open, but <laughs> in, yeah, yeah, on the flow line over there on the side of the location. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Man. Oops. So you know those sort of things. You you learn happens all the time. It, well, that's that's part of the learning lesson. But you know, it's like that's not supposed to be closed. Well, it, you don't know what's behind the valve, and that's that's an important lesson when you're out there playing uh, with wells. Is that you know you think something's behind it. Uh, you know, I've had a, another experience where I was shooting a fluid level on a ESP well, and um, I'm just doing a normal shot on ESP. And I open up the valve, the well to my fluid level gun, and it just wraps around the gauge to 2200 PSI. Jeez. Now, why was there 2200 PSI? This is not supposed to be operated that way, but this operator produced their wells with the casing closed in, right? And it was a big, they made a lot of water. I don't, I don't think they knew what they were doing because they couldn't explain it properly. But with the casing shut in, you're trapping pressure, you're depressing the top of the fluid level. In anyways, uh, you know, the fluid level was not at the pump intake yet. It eventually would be. It would trap enough pressure to depress the top of the fluid level down oh, to the intake yeah. of the ESP. But 
It was unexpected to find 2200 PSI. My fluid level gun is theoretically rated to 1500 PSI. Oh, damn it. It's it's supposed to burst at 3000, so it's you know the safety factor is too high. But you know, but that's that's another learning lesson. Even though you're not supposed to do this, like nobody says you produce your ESP with the casing shut in. You know, it could be by accident or for them it was intentional. They had some misunderstanding, and so. You have to be careful, but uh, yeah, I mean, there's nothing better than getting in the field to actually make things concrete. Right. All we, the learning in the theory in the classroom would be much better with that foundation. I so. have, I know I have, I'm confident in saying I have access to 10s to 20s to 30s leases and hundreds of wells around San Antonio that they need this kind of help. We need this kind of attention on this, on this oil field. We need to go back to these areas that we know have oil. We need to maximize these things. We need to optimize these things. So I'm, I feel strongly about it. I know, I think I can get it done where we, we, we attempt to do this. If you're up for it, the expansion of some kind of the downhole diagnostic business where you're helping someone do this and so and you and we find someone who really wants to do it <clears throat> right which could be a challenge in today's environment but get them People. out working with operators working with pumpers doing using the tools that you know how to use adjusting the variable frequencies on a motor and and just optimizing mm -hmm. just get feedback from your wells well you know literally i mean everything i know you know my online courses long but it covers like, every topic in there i think is critical and it's really boiling down 15 years of intensive study of rod pumping systems down to a 50 a 50 hour course you know which is so it's a lot of time but it's, it's really not that bad because it's every important topic and if you just watch it you could basically you know i'm basically giving the keys for anybody to go replicate me out there yeah um and and do what i do all you have to do is buy the equipment and get some knowledge and, and go out there and there's a huge need for it. Yes. It's just a matter of understanding what you're doing and, you know, spending $25,000 in equipment and truck right. and get some insurance and you can go out and basically go into competition with me, but there's always no, 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 plenty. no competition. Here. Well, you know, the other thing is though, is like, you know, if you hire somebody, this is a reason I've been a one man operator since the beginning, I've thought about hiring somebody, um, most of the time. So I don't know, there's, there's, there's maybe two things. Once you hire somebody in a company, especially the oil industry, like it becomes much more complicated with insurance, yeah. you know, and now you have to have training and like, you know, there, there's a lot of things that add on to it as opposed to I'm a one man operator. Yeah. It simplifies things. Uh, the second thing though, is that a lot of the times interpreting the fluid level and dynamometer is not, it's not that difficult, especially if you get trained, but, uh, uh, maybe I'm elitist on it, you know, but I feel like it's very important to actually do it properly at the well site because at the well site, you're a lot of times you're making an interpretation. Most of the time, it's very straightforward. Sometimes it's not, though. Yeah. And you have to do a couple tests here and there. You have to play with something to try and eliminate possibilities. And so, you know, if you get somebody that doesn't have experience, are they going to do that level right. of job? No way. Not at and first. so it's hard for me to put someone under my umbrella, my yeah. company, downhole yeah. diagnostic. This is supposed to be the Cadillac here, <laughs> yeah. you know? And so, All right. yeah, it, it, it's difficult um, for, for several aspects. And maybe I'm just a control freak. Obviously, it'd be nice sometimes to have somebody to go out in the well, field and do the work. let's test it out. This is the flexibility. We can work on it. We can work on it. You got to, I'm a conservative man. Fol it's hard so to pull me out of my groove, you know? I'm a conservative <laughs> man. I just don't know. But yeah, we can, we can... <coughs> 
<laughs> we can talk about it. we can we can theorize this at lunch I after agree. this discussion we need to because i got some great ideas we, we talked about flexibility of llc's flexibility and that's exactly what we're doing there you can get insurance you can do all these other things and and let something else take all the risk but still be just as involved economically as if it was under your umbrella what if you were my man it's <sighs> a good way to learn there's actually there's no better way to learn to understand rod pumping wells than to literally be out in the field applying this equipment i am already doing that are not you? applying the equipment, okay. but I'm out but, in the field. But you're trying I'm to learn. But once you get the downhole information, because you get legit hard, like reality, not just looking at a pressure gauge, you're getting good, certainly good experience. But when you can start to correlate what you're seeing with the fluid level shot and the dynamometer in relation to the pump action on the well, then you can go to other wells where you don't even have your equipment and you can start to better interpret it because you've... You've, you've kind of, yeah, you, it's kind of like, uh, cool. you know, you have the answer book, you know, with this equipment as to like right. the solutions to the problems and you know what's going on. And then when you go to other wells where you don't have the tools, you can much better interpret what, what you're actually looking at. So, I mean, I'm up for it. I'll be honest with you. I'm so fascinated with the idea of getting hydrocarbons out of the ground, getting them to the refineries, doing what we do in this industry. And I'm, 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 it, yeah, I find it very important. Um, profitability. Yeah, not just profitability, but Which, I think the future of, of, of our generation and our kids' generation to handle all this that's happened. There's, these wells are drilled on two and a half acre spacing sometimes. Wow. Maybe even tighter. Wow. Dude. Down here? Yes. Yes. What? And you're I don't going, know if I've seen that. Oh man, I could take you. Wow, three hundred feet apart, you know less. Oh. So you, you, there's all this out here, and it's all complex, and it's all like, well, what the heck are we going to do with that? You know, the the operator's gone in some cases. You know, like how are we taking care of this mess? Mm -hmm. What are we doing? You know, and mm -hmm. and I, and I. So there's a lot of pride in that. I think there's a lot of a lot to learn. There's a lot of potential success. There's a lot of potential. Uh, business, right? Economic success for from sure. doing this. So it's, it could be very rewarding. It could be very, very rewarding. And it could be something that I think we need. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And so I want to push for that. I want to mm -hmm. push you. Everybody needs that. more feedback because when's the last time you got a fluid level and dynamometer test on your wells? Never. Oh, well, that's... you were the first one. Really? Yes. Wow. You're my first one. I did and that was one required by the regulatory body, right? The railroad commission. So that's right. That's exactly Interesting. right. Yeah. Well, there's, there's a lot of operators like yourself. It's just a matter of getting the message to them that there's a better way, you know, and it's about having feedback from the well so that you can make appropriate decisions. So not too complicated. You know, it's just, it's that's just the feedback. And most of the time it's just, are we getting our production or not? And then just setting the runtime. That's yeah. usually what it is. And then you'll find lots of oddballs where, you know, you got a hole in the pump barrel here, like that you might want to address. Yeah. And, you yeah. know, you find these things, oh, your casing valve was closed, which you, you'll find with a fluid level shot because you have a pressure gauge on it. And, you know, every, you know, depending on the operator, but every four, 30, 50 wells or something, you'll find something like that where something's just wrong, where they have the casing choke screwed in, holding back pressure, 
which depresses the top of the fluid aye, level, aye, aye. and it's you're restricting your intake because yeah. you're holding this gas column pressure that's reducing the, in, you know, it's increasing the bottom hole pressure, it's reducing the inflow. So you find these sort of things, and it's just a matter of just checking out the wells. How's everything doing? This well's running really fast. You don't need to. We can downsize this shiv yeah. to here. It's a very simple change, and you might not even change it now, but when the drive belts burn off and you're going to have the roustabout at that particular well, change it. that's the time to do it. So you don't even have to do it in the moment, but when it's most cost-effective, where I'm going to have the roustabouts there anyways, I know that I shouldn't put the drive belts on that same shiv. Let's just downsize the shiv. It's very simple stuff. You can all do it cost-effective. It's just a matter of knowing the tools and what they give. And I, I will say, I mean, if people are interested, if you go on YouTube or if you go on my uh, course website, you can watch, you know, on YouTube, there's five videos for free. And on my website, there's, there's like nine for free, you know, so if you sign up for a free preview, but in the um, first couple sections, I go into fluid level dynamometer systems, like introduction, you know, um, as oh, to what they on. do. So it'll show you what the acoustic trace looks like from the fluid level shot. And you can also see, I think there's even the introduction of fluid level shots is available for free on, on the course website as a free preview. But you can see what the tools are doing, how you interpret them. Of course, Freaking if you awesome, want to get dude. the rest of the course, you got you to pay for it. But right. yes, but you can, you can see what is the applicability and, and uh, the value from it. Yes. Educated decisions, feedback. Yes. Every, everybody gets feedback in an industry. It's kind of interesting how in this, and it's not expensive. Like if I was trying to come pitch to you, Hey, I can find out valuable information on your well. All we have to do is pull the well, pull the rods out and pull the tubing out and then run some device down in your well. And I can get valuable information Well, you're going to say, well, that that's, that's a lot of money. You know, I got to get a rig. I got all of this rig time. Yeah. You know, issues can happen when you're pulling equipment out, things can go wrong. Yeah. Well, I'm talking about, you know, I drive up to your well, I hook up equipment that is basically, um, it's safe and effective. Okay. If you know this term, so you really, I mean, you're hooking things up and from surface, you're getting data about what's happening down hole and really you can't break anything like, and nothing can go wrong and it's, it's cheap and it's fast, you know, and it's, it's cheap because it is fast and yeah. you don't need a rig. And so why would you not get this information so that you understand and really the best thing to do. And I think this is one thing that also sets me apart from other people that do this sort of thing, but you, when, when you test your wells, you should make an Excel spreadsheet, okay, with all the important information, make it all chronological. So okay. you have 20 wells on a lease, I yep. test them all, I re report all the important information in an Excel spreadsheet. So you can look at all of your wells, the date of the test, the runtime, stroke per minute, stroke length, pump size, Man. seating, nipple depth, tubing pressure, casing pressure, ah. where's the fluid level, how did the pump fillage look in the comments. But Come on. That way you can, you, you have an overview of all your wells, and let's say you did the test twice a year, and then you could twice see a how, month. Twice, twice a month. Well, <laughs> probably not in your case. But, you know, as you do test, you start adding it to it. You start building a history. It's and it's like medical records. Yes. I dude. talk about this in uh, section 12 of my, okay. uh, I think section 12 of my online course, the other topics. But anyways, I show the spreadsheet and what I do. But you build, it's like a medical history on That's the well. Right. And you can see very quickly you get a snapshot what wells are doing good which wells are not yes and are they not doing on uh, good on the production side we're not getting all the production or are they getting the production maybe the wells pumped off but inefficiently maybe you got a worn pump or maybe you're just pounding fluid a lot of the day because your runtime is off and so Gosh, dude. yeah and so it's really it's really quite simple but it's it's not just getting data 
It's getting data and applying it and making the data valuable. That's right. And so a lot of people that do my sort of job, they just send in PDF reports. You get all these scattered PDF reports you don't keep up with. It's hard to keep things in your mind, especially if it's a test. You know, uh, if you're trying to cycle through or look through PDF reports from six months ago and then a year ago, that sort of thing, it's hard. But if you have a summary Excel spreadsheet that's documenting all of this and gives you a quick overview of your of your well, you can quickly troubleshoot the problem wells, also see the performance of your well over time. You can even include in there the well test production numbers, what is the average production you know, from the well in relation to the fluid level shot, in relation to the dynamometer. Really? Yeah. yeah that makes sense. It's good stuff. That makes sense. It's really good stuff. All right, man, let's wrap up the drill right. down segment with this. Your elevator pitch for your e-course. My elevator pitch for the e-course. Well, you're operating wells, right? And so you're, you're spending money and why don't we do it efficiently? Okay. If you have enough money to pull the well and fix a downhole failure, okay, we should have the money to get feedback from that well and to try and prevent the failure. That's the first case. There's two advantages to the diagnostic tools. And in my course, I go all into the diagnostic tools, how to apply them, but then beyond that into automation, downhole, gas and solid separation. But really you have two different things. You can optimize the well in its current state while it's producing, but then you have the information to understand what to change mm. the next time you pull it. So you have two different ways to apply and get value out of it. Right now we can adjust the POC settings. We can adjust the timer settings. We know that we need to slow the well down or we need to speed the well up. Mm -hmm. The well's not pumped off. We need to run it faster to get mm -hmm. more production. And then also when we have to pull the equipment out, we know what we need to change. Maybe it's the gas separator. Maybe it's time to drop the seating nipple below the bottom perfs. Maybe <laughs> yeah. it's the fact that I'm seeing indications of solids in my valves and my pump. And at this point, we need to try to run a better pump design for solids, yeah. okay? Double valve or some of the specialty pumps. I also talk about that in the course. So you have these two different avenues. So it's about understanding your well in making good decisions. And that's what the course is all about. And really the course is fantastic. Uh, because I've been working on it for four and a half years. So I've been studying rod pumping systems intensively, but I have tons of pictures. I have, I've been cataloging interesting examples that I've encountered since I started my work. And I didn't know what for, it was really a reference for me, yeah. but I've been able to incorporate those into the course. Awesome, and so, and it's also, it's engaging. You've seen the yeah. way that it's presented. I'm floating in the bottom corner of the slide yeah. and things are popping up. It's timed. It's not just a slide with a bunch of images. It's a, it's the best produced course I've ever seen. That was obviously the goal and so that I would be my elevator that comment yeah we need second to get you a little bit more into it. you need to free up a little bit more time and yeah. eat some ham, ham sandwiches with me at lunch and uh take uh take a few more hours of the course uh each week to yep. get through it but that's a fact i need more time i need more time and uh we're gonna do something man okay. i know we will all right um, sounds good let's get into the completion segment of the pbe podcast okay completion segment of the pbe podcast all about like future man What's it look like? What do you imagine five, ten years from now? For Man, that is so interesting. You know, I've had my nose down to the ground for so long on this course. Um, I haven't even, I'm, I'm starting to get to the completion of my finalized, my third and finalized recording. Every time right. I pass through, it gets better. I get more knowledgeable. The, the information flows out better in my presentation. But I haven't even really thought, and I've started to think a little bit, it's going to be like the kids moving out of the house when I finish this course, you know, it's like, what do I do with my time? You know, yeah. um, I think I might make 
another course, um, and I don't actually know. I'm not exactly sure where it goes, and I don't have a really definitive thing. I'm thinking about maybe I'll make like a shortened summarized course nice. because this one goes into all the information. But right. for people that want to hit more of the high level, that don't want it all, and of course, an online course, you know, if you don't like a video, you just skip it. So it's not like you have to go through the whole thing. But maybe make like a eight hour type course might be my next uh, wow. my next goal. And at some point in the future, I don't know. Sometimes I think about maybe getting into, uh, I could go be a rod pumping specialist at a big company, you know, and kind of lead a huge team. I could also go into potentially uh, into uh, small operations like what you're doing yeah. and bring my talent to that sort of thing. And uh, maybe even just kind of, you know, get out of the field, but general uh, artificial lift consulting. Is, nice. is my sort of thing. So at some point, my wife wants us out of Midland. I know that is a fact. <laughs> and uh, to, keep, keep the, to keep relations good. And of course, I, I don't want to retire there either. I've been there for 15 years now. Okay. And so that will happen at some point. And the question is, is, am I moving to another oil field area? You know, San Antonio, Dallas, Houston. Yeah. Or am I moving somewhere that's not even related? Am I working remotely? And so Oops. I think it could go both ways. She actually wants us to move to Russia. It's like, babe, let's wait till the war is over. I don't know if I could be drafted, babe. Let's just <laughs> hold on right now. But um, so I don't exactly know. Right on. But something, something with training and applying this vast knowledge that I've developed. Absolutely. And what's interesting, I knew a lot. But in putting this course together and recording and re-recording and going through and perfecting the slides, yeah. man, my, my knowledge of the systems, which right, dude. is just, it's perfectly all melded together. You must have it just seen flows. this pyramid of learning. If you, want, if you want to understand, teach it. Man, it is, right. it is yeah, so true. Maybe it's eight so levels true. of it, right? Yeah. But the, the bottom, when you're like at that 90 to 100% range of of real knowledge and like understanding it's when you teach it yeah now that's that's how you get to that higher level because i knew all these concepts but you know they were a little bit disjointed and sure there's just a lot of things that i mean after going through it but yeah so i'll probably apply this knowledge i don't know how i'm not going to be in the field forever i can guarantee you that but yes. it's it's good to stay connected it's good to stay connected to the field but Certainly, there's a time and place for it, and I'm getting to be an old man myself. Well, I still spike my hair a little bit, but you know, I, I got hair. Yeah, at least you still I got it for it, life, man. though. Yeah, yeah, I got it for life. So, uh, but you know, I'm getting a little bit older. So, yeah. dude, so tell me about your minor in geology a little bit. I love geology, actually. I really love geology, and it's so valuable and important. In petroleum engineering, you have to take a couple basic classes in geology, and maybe like one, maybe two. And uh, I thought it was so fascinating and it's so critically important because the oil and gas is contained in the rocks, right? That's right. And so That's I thought right. it was absolutely critical. And I loved just the depositional environments, the stratigraphy, the understanding what conditions, and you could probably say this all much better than me because uh, I haven't studied this in a long time, but I really loved thinking about, um, you know, the conditions that created the basins where the organ-rich compounds were deposited in you know in the permian basin we're we're drilling into the uh we're drilling into the place where the hydrocarbons were formed That's you know we're, right. we're drilling into the source rock is what yeah. they would call it right yeah um, as opposed to other places there's source rock and then the oil migrates right and then it gets up higher but um i think it's just absolutely fascinating let me ask you a question what do you think about 
the alternative theory of hydrocarbon generation not related to organic-rich compounds. Oh, gosh, dude. Is, what is, is it a joke, or...? No, hell no, it's not a joke. You oh, got... is it real? Ah, so the Russians... So, so explain, ex- I know I know the Russians, right? Ah. I, I've seen them, I don't know if they still believe this, but what is that theory? Well, the, the basic is you have abiotic sources of hydrocarbons, or you have biotic So biotic sources. is life? Yes. Okay, biology. and abiotic is not from life. Right. So it's from pressure and temperature and, like, the down in the mantle? I mean, what are yeah. we talking so about? So what is a hydrocarbon? Hydrogen and carbon. What is what is hydrocarbon? What is the molecule? What are the molecules that make up hydrocarbon? Hydrogen and carbon. All right. So, is that does that have to come from biology, or can hydro hydrogen and carbons come together without biology involved? That's a great point. Biology is what's the difference between biology and hydrocarbons molecularly? Okay. Uh, I don't know oxygen okay so we are biology we are hydrogens carbons and oxygens okay hydrocarbons are just hydrogens and carbons hydrogens and carbons seem to make up the hco system that we are okay so the hydrocarbon system is way bigger than the biology system the russians talked about this for years and years and years they go it appears that the hydrocarbon system gets bigger as you get deeper <laughs> do they drill based on this fact i mean there's because all my, kinds of concepts about my that. understanding though is why is it why is it that all the oil seems to be in some sort of ancient sea you know or right off the coast and not i don't know if that's always or not but you find so much in the gulf of mexico or right. you know in norway over there in the middle east they got water all around it I don't know if they find a well in Siberia or something like completely landlocked right in the center. Yeah. But of course, some of those old places theoretically used to be underwater, and there's evidence of it, though. I mean, there's the limestone, and you have all of the, the different fossils from the marine yeah. creatures. So it was underwater. We have oh, cores yeah. that, right? Yeah. So why, if that is the case, why do we tend to find the uh, biotic? Who's drilling based on the, the, abio- uh, the abiotic? Uh, so is Russia? No, no, no. So conceptually, are you drilling this target because you think it came from biology or not is way off the list of things that we all want to know before we go drill this well. We just know how deep it probably is. We have an idea of how much could be there. Let's run the economics and let's drill this thing. Where it came from is not something that we see that's true it's like oh that's uh we don't want to drill that that's not uh that's abiotic we don't want we just care is there oil but it does seem to be correlated with ancient seas in marine life right or is that just potentially but so the russians i I think they drilled some super deep well at some point testing this theory am i correct where they drilled something that was Thirty thousand feet vertically. Oh man, the or? Russians did the uh, for, the deepest well in the world. It's like forty four thousand. Forty four thousand. Yeah, they're just melting drill bits as they. Oh, dude, and, it was, is it a productive well? Is it is, no, it, is no, it going no. gangbusters? So the, I mean, what happened we, to it? We did a we did a show with Lev Vernick out of Icon Science, and he was a part of the team. Oh, really? That was studying some of this, and it was really a geophysical study, uh, rather than like where does oil come from. They shot seismic and they got all these layers back from the sound going that, through and reflecting back and showing all these different... That deep? 
Oh, yeah. They, they it's shot, just unbelievable. Shots. You can see 40... 40,000 foot deep? It's just all blurry. You know, okay. once you yeah, get yeah, real yeah, deep, yeah. it's just noise. But you can see like, a lot of the reflections coming Interesting. Down. And they go, all right, geophysicists, what do you think that is? You know, what do you think it's going to be? And they're like, oh, it's, this is going to be igneous. That might be sedimentary. That, okay. You know, they made all these predictions and they drilled it. And then they, they cored it. The whole entire thing has been cored. In Come Russia, on. Some, dude. It took them like 30 years or some shit to do this. They cord the whole thing? Cord the whole thing? Something? Come you, on. When you go to Russia. I go to Russia. Where? Start asking. Okay, I'll find this out. Where is this building that I'll find has all the core? The core is laid out in like a three we'll to five story We'll get them on the podcast. Building. Whoever's in charge of this core that can tell us everything about it. We'll, yes. get, them, we'll get them on the pod. So, dude, let's do it. So they drilled this thing. They drilled, they drilled it super deep. They got the core back. Their predictions were all over the place. You know, most of the stories that I hear, they just, they, they were wrong. You know, like, oh man, that's not what the rock is. Oh, that not, you know, what, but it was mostly igneous. It wasn't a big basin. It wasn't a big okay. sedimentary, so-called sedimentary basin. Um, so the Russians, long story short, I can't remember the name, but someone famous said, yeah, it appears the petroleum system uh, gets lighter in hydrocarbons and it and as you get deeper it gets bigger so that's what does an that interesting mean? anomaly it gets lighter in hydrocarbons yeah so your methanes and your your lighter alkanes so your c1s through c10s okay yeah it gets lighter your, your heavier's are shallower in the crust closer to the surface you see the heavier oil the heavier hydrocarbons but because as it gets deeper it's hotter and it cooks more right this is my whole understanding cool. right isn't that i you you know the 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 biotic is marine or you know organic rich material algae right. phytoplankton whatever dies gets buried and then it cooks to oil and then if it right. continues to cook longer higher temperature higher pressure it cooks gas right yeah. it breaks the chain yep okay there's anomalies in all this stuff. You can drill a well to 10,000 feet in the Permian Basin and get nothing but a gas. So, so when they, yeah, yeah. And you can drill 20,000 feet and get some of the biggest Ellenberger oil wells. See, now that's due to the fact that it kind of maybe where it is, its current position has flopped. Now, I, I know a little bit about this. I, I just was reading about the Permian Basin recently for my course, but in the western part of the Delaware, you find some gas higher some gassier zones are higher in elevation than some of the oil zones that are lower, but they talk about the fact that the, when it cooked, it was maybe different and things have right. mechanically or tectonically shifted to right. where the way where it's like, you know, where it is now does not necessarily relate to where it was when it cooked. Sure. It was in a different part of the oven. Yeah. No, Laramide came in and lifted the whole west side of the uh, Permian Basin for sure. But so you think there is validity of the fact that, back to the original question, there's validity to there's a bigger system and academia and, and all of us that study this are not there yet but we're figuring it out there's a process really? called serpentinization okay there's a rock called serpentinite on the planet and it's a it's the most important rock on the planet for several reasons but one of which is the hydrogenation of what's called a peridotite, which is an igneous rock, when encountered at depth with water, makes serpentinite. And why so, is this rock important? So the, the rock has everything in it to make oil. So okay. You, you get your carriage in this rock, it's been found. But also in this rock is this connection to the Burgess Shale. This is where we understand life on the planet, right? The Cambrian explosion. Okay. Have you heard that? 
Yeah, not Cambrian, too familiar, but Cambrian explosions where all we, we go and just study the heck out of how life exploded on the planet. So we got four point five five ish billion years of rock and planet doing its thing, but life shows up at around five hundred million, five twenty five, okay. five fifty. So it's like what the you got four billion years of no life rock doing some crazy things and then life just explodes in the cambrian it's called the cambrian explosion that's in the burgess okay. shale if you go there and you study the rock it's it appears that life is exploding out of the serpentine muds so the serpentinite related rocks in the area is where we see all these fossils so it has huh. something to do with the spark of life interesting the other thing that serpentinite is have you heard of the moho Sounds like an Indian tribe. The Moho, man. No, I don't know about the Mohos. This is a geophysical anomaly around the entire planet. Every country's got it. All the basins got it. All the oceans have it. It's the, it's the contact in a geophysical anomaly. So when you hit sound waves, you hit the Moho. It's the contact between the mantle and the crust. Okay. Well, that rock, it's a rock right? The geophysical anomaly is something, right? You see it all over the planet, on the continents, on the ocean floors, the moho. Okay. We, that's the contact. Well, what's the rock, right? What's, the, what's it made out of? Well, now we're starting to drill this thing and it's serpentine. It's serpentinite. How, how deep is this? In it can usual... be anywhere from 50 kilometers on the continents to ocean floor at 15, 10 to 15 kilometers. We're drilling this? Yeah, so like in Hawaii, they're starting to drill this thing. They're starting to poke into it. And yeah. what are they? What are they doing? Is this just exploration, or is this an oil, not yeah, oil and no, gas just related, just pure, some pure science, science project? Like, what's the moat? What is this thing? Let's 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 drill it. See what it's made of. Well, the rocks coming back is serpentinite. So, one of the ideas is that okay, you got this serpentosphere. You got a layer on the planet. Just like you have the iron core and then you have the mesosphere and then, you know, these layers of our planet, there could be a layer right at the crust mantle boundary that is this rock serpentinite. Which could generate oil. This ties into the fact that it's got the properties to generate oil and gas. Yeah. And so possibly some comes from bi biotic. It sure. comes from life. Some maybe is abiotic and it would have to make its way up as oil and gas like to migrate until they hit a boundary, but it would have to make its way up a long way before it were to come someplace into a physical trap. Yep. Or it seeps. Yeah. A lot of this can, you can study from Magma Chem Research Institute. Hmm. Yeah. It's a nonprofit that I helped start. Did geologists talk a lot about the abiotic? Because this was never, I almost thought it was like some conspiracy theory. I was like, oh my God, they've been lying to me this whole time of petroleum engineering. Like, you know, it doesn't come from marine life. And I started looking into it and I didn't see that there was much evidence to it. And I was like, oh, okay. And it all seems to correlate with ancient seas. And, you know, and yeah. I was like, okay, they did tell me the truth. But <laughs> what are you but, telling me right now? Are you just turning my world upside down? You're telling me that there's a very real possibility and people believe this? Super real possibility. Oh. Very? Without question. Really? Without oh, question. You're blowing my mind. I didn't know that. Yeah. No, the, the, the dynamics are changing a lot in that realm of science. And, and it's, 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 it's almost a paradigm shift that we're living through. You know, it's exciting. It's exciting to think about it. It's exciting to challenge it. You collect the data. Everyone's looking at the same data sets, but you can interpret it from a completely new perspective. So that would mean... Hydrocarbons are not a fossil fuel. That's right. 
And that would also mean that maybe there is, I mean, if you could tap into it somehow, there's abundant resources of this that are, because we're in the, you know, right now we're drilling the source rock and we're doing these expensive horizontal and fracking operations. We're not picking the low hanging fruit anymore. We're, yeah. we're going for the more difficult production, but yeah. potentially there's a possibility that there is a, a huge untapped resource, maybe tapped to some degree if it's coming up to reservoirs that we're producing, but, um, but potentially something that was not in the equation for peak oil. Yeah, dude. Peak oil. Peak oil <laughs> remember is, peak uh, oil? Yeah. We, we forgot about that. that yeah, that's right. Needs that was when I was in college. That. I remember I remember peak oil. It's going to $500 a barrel. And uh, it's, it needs to be forgot about. I think uh, the B, BP's CEO, I think it was, a couple years ago, a few years ago, said, you know, peak oil needs to be better thought of as, you know, our consumption of this to make energy there's a peak to our consumption of this form of energy to, yeah, yeah, yeah. to use electricity and all that stuff that's peak what do you think that peak will be oh do you know it, it's going to be it, it has to rely on some reliable depends, alternative well it depends on the politics well you know they i don't know i mean sometimes they want to shut it down and then they're like we'll figure out the alternative let's just turn it off but sure. yeah I, I would agree i they there's a lot of talk but then it comes down to reality um, yeah. Well, there needs to be a whole other reality on the study of this. and, and That's how. fascinating. Mm -hmm. well, I yeah. need to talk to my Russians. Dude. My Ruskies. Get them, man. My, my Ruskies. Bring yeah, them, yeah, yeah. Ask them, say, hey, what do you know about Serpentinite? Yeah. Take me Serp to your Serpentinite because every continent's got them. Every continent has coughed up Serpentinites in the middle of the continents and on the edges. Interesting. You find Serpentinites all over the oil and gas fields in California on the coast and you find serpentinite minerals in the permian basin yeah i mean this is this is stuff that's just drilled up you're talking about it's all deep right there's no like outcrops or anything no like no it's outcrops it gets coughed up through tectonic events oh really yeah no that's how we understand the layers of the earth but, but know, so this if this stuff. can form you're saying this is what can form hydrocarbons i mean can't you take it to a lab and put it under pressure and temperature and see does it oil and gas squeeze out of it i mean when you do this sort of thing or does it require some additional input lot of additional input uh -huh. from taking a serpentinite to making liquid oil mm. and gas but you can take a you can take a black shale which sometimes are sedimentary true sedimentary in the in the sense that it was some erosion from a long distance and all those grains came out and make these pelagic mud that's full of organics and then that converts to carrageen and then carrageen gets hydrogenated Mm -hmm. and makes liquid oil h2c that's possible but there's also chemical black muds there's also chemical sedimentary rocks and that's from a deeper process that's from this process called serpentinization that's absolutely fascinating dude it's you, really you talk really about fun. this a lot on your podcast yeah I bring oh, it up man. and and talk about it but rarely do i get someone to, to ask those you know, the <clears throat> these specific questions that really open up the can of worms where you where we do this all the time is the research institute so you can you can see the webinars on there are you involved in that or? yeah so i'm a okay. co-host on the webinars okay interesting yeah so you can check those out at magmachemri.org cool yeah very fascinating dude it's the, the science is really really fun really fascinating and allows you to approach the oil and gas industry with a new perspective you now, know. now are people kind of uh, uh are they kind of uh discarded if they believe this idea is this kind of fringe hey. is it like oh you're one of those flat earther type people so is, it, <laughs> oh, man. is it like that you're one no of those way. no no people are accepted and 
You know, or well, is it like the, you know, it came from a lab type thing where you're kind of, uh, you well, know, dude, like where you can imagine. people, you know, because people are invested in a certain theory right. to some degree. And right. I mean, you can imagine, but we're all invested in oil and gas. It doesn't really matter where it there came from. Go. But sometimes when you up in the apple cart, there's oh, people dude. that, that don't like it. So what is that like? Uh, is, is there a thing? I, I didn't oh, know this. I thought this was, I didn't know this. So I read about this a long time ago and I thought it was just the Russians thinking it and there was no evidence. And so you're kind of blowing my mind what you're talking about right now, especially in the fact that this is somewhat, a very real possibility and people generally accept it. I did not. Very real possibility. People generally accept the conversation. Okay. Challenge the preconceived theories. It's like a real science where you right? actually accept a little controversy you to debate. That's throwing, good. Yeah. That's the way science is supposed to be. That's right, man. Yeah. That's right. We're getting back to the roots of science and debating and looking at data and saying, hold on, what do you think versus what I think? And who's making the least amount of assumptions to get to an answer? Yeah. You know, like that's what it's about, man. And it's, it's really, really fun. And yeah, but there's certainly, you go out and start telling people, they'd be like, oh, this is a bunch of crock. You know, it's just a bunch of cooked up old dead dinosaurs. Just stick with that. You'll be fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, well, they, I, you know, they would like you to think it's a finite resource. You know, uh -oh. The powers that be. <laughs> now that's, go, a, yeah. that's a separate podcast. The powers that be, it's limited. We have to regulate it. Yeah. We're running out. Yeah. You know? Well, we got to regulate energy. So the reason to regulate it could be something that is dreamed up and planned and enforced and trying to manipulate people. But I think the natural progression of where science was and the ideas 30, I mean, this is 1930s. AEPG really came out and said, all right, these black shales are the source guys. That's where we see all this carriage in. That's what makes oil. There's no, there's no disruption in that, that carriagin makes oil. For sure. But what made the carriagin? That's where it gets real disruptive. And there's and, no little biomarkers or anything that would, <clears throat> that would indicate. I, I, I'm far beyond my level of knowledge here. I don't you know if you would know this either, that is there any way to distinguish? Like if you made hydrocarbons in a lab, like in some laboratory, just from hydrogen and carbon, could you differentiate that so from... we talked about this in, in a previous podcast. There's a... Uh, Lewin is his last name. What was his first name? USGS guy took Woodford Shale and put it in the lab, put a bunch of heat on it. And it wasn't until he added brine, a salty okay. water, that all of a sudden that core started making liquid oil in about 72 hours, started making liquid oil and it was making gas. When he did it dry, it was just gas. Just a little bit of gas came off it dry. Mm. But when you put a hydrothermal, which is what our planet is, we're in the, mm. water, we're in the water belt of the solar system, right? Yeah. That's, that's what's unique about Earth. When you make hot water reactions, hydrothermal reactions in the laboratory, some amazing shit started happening in his results interesting yeah so it was like right on this is this is cool and so he was making oil out of that old rock um in 72 hours so that that's very disruptive to the prop to, to the to the idea that you need tens and millions of years 50 million years and you need to you need to subduct the reservoir this old mud into the depths of the earth and then it cooks and then you spring it back up to where we see it today yeah. you know that's called elevator tectonics and if you okay. actually get into the rocks in the region of the permian basin for example you don't see that you don't see this story in the rocks that this whole area of texas was somehow submerged thousands and thousands of feet and then it sprung back up to where the depths are today 
You don't see that in the geological. But you can you can see layers of rock indicating different depositional environments. You can tell that it was certainly underwater, right? That's right. With with the the limestone, the coral reefs, like like that sort of thing. So, but maybe it didn't go to the depths that you're talking about. Is what it is. Okay. Yeah, maybe there's a deep-seated fault system, plumbing system. Okay. That's feeding feeding the biosphere. Wow. Mm-hmm. Are you talking about, okay, so it's just funneling up through some fracture up to yeah into the reservoir. Yeah. But it would be huh, that's just fascinating. Yeah, yeah, it all needs to be worked out. It all needs to be better understood. It needs to be challenged, and that's what we're doing today. You know, that's today's environment is like okay, like you, you're certainly not going to sit there. Some people would and sit there and say, no, it's you, that's never going to work. Serpentinization, this idea, you know, never going to work, never going to believe it. But there's a lot of people that are like, you know, maybe, you know, it, it, there's, like there's enough information that it's so good to challenge though. Yeah. Dude. The consensus. Yeah. And even if it's not right, it gets you thinking oh, differently man. and it might lead you in a different direction. Hey, you it have motivates to, you. Ch- yeah, it, it does. You. you gotta, you gotta go back to the the foundational principles and saying, yeah. you know, is this true? Like yeah. we all accept it. And that's the problem. That's why sometimes when people come from outside of an industry, they come and disrupt it because everybody's thinking a certain yeah. way. And yeah. then somebody comes in with fresh ideas and like, well, yeah. why do you accept this as being true? Are we sure about that? Yeah. And then they challenge that and find that there's a different way to do this. And it's actually maybe a much more efficient way. It's just that we're all, we're all geared and doing it this particular way. Yeah. So, yep. And so there's been all these anomalies in the industry where you find oil in igneous rocks, you know, no life at all associated with these things. What's all this oil doing here? Oh, yeah. it migrated there somehow and got trapped. Well, there's, you, know, you really dive into the analytical data now that we have all these computers that can do this all, this, all these new ways of lab analytics. You can go get carriage numbers on this stuff, and it's like, holy cow, there's carriage in it. Yeah. Like, whoa. So it could have been born there. It could have been made there with a total non-biology associated process like what's going on there and then yeah so serpentinization's time has really come in science you know neil degrasse tyson talks about serpentinization now interesting so it's it's here we're just really starting to uncover it well i'll have to look into this so thank you for the topic yeah wow you're kind of blowing my mind here at the end so (laughs) here we are yeah Right on. Well, you blow my mind all this whole show on this dang uh, downhole diagnostic stuff. So it's been mutually uh, mind blowing. Good. And uh, and understanding really how we do this. So I think that's uh, that might be the completion. I think we had a good run here. So <laughs> the PV we had a good run. Thank you for sharing your time, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was an do. absolute pleasure. So I love talking about the the subject and enjoyed the discussion back and forth. So anytime. Right on. Anytime I'm in San Antonio. Yeah. How does someone get a hold of you? Uh, they can go to downholediagnostic.com or you can check out my website or my online course, which is linked on my, my website. But you can go to rodpumpingoptimization.com. So that would be the best place. I got lots of information on my website. So also about fluid level dynamometer tests and lots of example images and kind of like the theory on it. Um, so you can find me there, though. Right you can on. also get with me on LinkedIn. I get a little political, though. Sometimes I say some things. Uh, yeah, you got to spice it up. canceled now. No, no, no. We're in the oil industry. We're already hated, so we can say whatever we want. Uh, I've had people say that I should be canceled, but it's like, <laughs> come on, man. Anyways, but uh, yeah, I get a little political, but that keeps things exciting. So you got to speak the truth. You know, we've got too much censorship in this world, but you can find me on LinkedIn. Good. So. Good deal, man. Right on. Well, thanks for the show. Absolute pleasure. Thank you. It was a pleasure being here.